welcome. Welcome back to another episode of Just Innocent Podcast. It has been a hot fucking minute, and uh, I've recently had uh, someone on Sniper's Hide send me a message basically saying, fuck you at, I've been missing some podcasts. And I'm like, okay, well, now I feel like a, a slack ass piece of shit. Um, but Appropriate. I already, yeah, but I already had this and Thursday night's podcast two in one week. They won't be released this both this week. This won't be released tonight, but uh, the next one will be released next week. Um, but these are already planned before I got that. We just had to make the wait for the timing was right. But uh, tonight's guest is once again Joshua Coons from Patriot Valley. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello. Hurry up. Break down my shitty wall. Goddamn Algorians. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I gotta find some time to sit down and watch that movie again. Oh uh, well, yeah, well, that's uh, don't be a menace to South Central, but I was actually just quoting uh, the South, South Park, Park episode. Yeah, yep. the mm-hmm. the shitty uh, city uh, city walk, shitty yep. walk. Yep. Goddamn Mongolians, break down my shitty wall. <laughs> <laughs> so what you doing? Uh, oh man, uh, it's been busy. It's uh how how does that saying go hotter than uh two rats fucking in a wool sock? Oh yeah, it's hotter than Satan's ball bag. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, that one too. I'm, I I don't know if it's that. I mean, it seems like Seattle and Vancouver are getting that right now. But mm, yeah, dude, what's up with the the Northwest being hot as fuck? Like it's hotter there than it is here and it's yeah. always hotter than shit here. Yeah. I mean, it, it's I think it's something like 40 degrees hotter than normal right now up there. You know, mm. that'd be like if you guys were doing like about 195 degrees. Yeah, just about. I mean, it was 86 today, which is, I mean, that's on par. 100% humidity, of course, but uh, right. that's I mean, that's about on par. 86, 87, 90. Yeah. You know, uh, next month I believe it'll crank up a little bit and stay in the low to high 90s. So yeah, we uh, were uh, 93 or 94 today in the shade. Oh, wow. So. Oh wow! It's a little, little bit warm. What you drinking over there? Um, seltzer water. That's it. Yep. It's the Just Episode yeah. podcast. <clears throat> well, my wife's out of town and I got the kids, so if one of them uh, rolls in, oh. I've got a cigar and a cold beer. Something's gonna get oh, spilled. Okay. I know how that works. Oh yeah, I understand. Well, tonight I am drinking Voodoo Ranger V2K. IPA and I'm at the verdict. The verdict is still out on it. I'm not, it's not 1985 and it's not the American IPA. But is that the new one you brought on the boat with us a couple weeks ago? No, no. Um, that was some other ones out of a variety pack. This was actually a six pack of this that I bought, and it's it's okay. It's not my favorite, but it's decent enough to drink. It's not seltzer water either. No, fuck no. That shit sucks. <laughs> I can't stand that shit. No, no, I say that, but you remember you? Oh, do you remember uh, um, what was it called? Um, I was drinking some tonight. Canadian is a Canadian mist. No, Sierra mist. No, no, no. Um, damn it! Now I'm thinking about it. I can't. I I was drinking at night because I found it. It's something I grew up on drinking, and it's a. Yeah, it's a Canadian shit. Is it? What is it? Clearly Canadian. 
Never heard of it. Oh God, it, it's the only thing close to a seltzer water that I can drink. And I grew up drinking the blackberry flavor. And uh, it's anyway, it was like discontinued forever. I did like Google searches years ago, and it's like the plant huh. like shut down. But they were, hey, we're gonna start doing a limited run and up in Canada, right? And uh, I was like, shit, there's no way I can get any of that. And so it's like one of those things that you you used to be able to get and you like and you took for granted, and then when it was gone, you're like, shit, I missed that stuff. Well, right. they've got it. They've got it at my local grocery store, so I've been buying it. Shit's like two seventy nine a bottle, but she was. It's delicious so, though. I was gonna ask if you were buying it by the pallet and filling the garage up with it, but at two seventy nine a bottle, I'm guessing no. Fuck no. And you know what the crazy thing is? It's two seventy nine a bottle, but for like on Amazon, I first looked at Amazon. I was like, well, Amazon's probably gonna have it. They they're selling it. It's before I knew that they had it at my grocery store. Uh, they wanted like $44 for like a, like a 10 pack of them or oh, something. Yikes. I was like, Oh no, I'll never get it. If that's all I'm the only way I'm gonna be able to get it. Yeah. Uh, but then I saw it in my grocery store. I was like, it's still expensive, but it's not that expensive. Yeah. I'm, but, uh, <clears throat> I'm drinking the target brand seltzer water. La Croix. Yeah. So. Ocean water. Is like uh. drinking the Atlantic. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, we have not, I have not done an update on the podcast regarding the Big Rock Marlin tournament that you and I fished with Jeffrey and my cousin and uh, Jeff's brother-in-law. brother-in-law. Yep. Um, yep. So let's do a little recap of that. So basically. Uh-huh. In case anyone didn't know, I believe I've pretty much covered this in the podcast, the truck cast before before the, the tournament that the Big Rock is the premier Marlin tournament on the East Coast. By far the biggest payout on the East Coast. And mm, where's the White Marlin open held? I thought the White uh, Marlin open was on the East Coast. It is but it is not the size of the of the big rock yeah but the prize money is bigger isn't it i don't think so i mean if you do total purse i mean total purse maybe it's true yeah because i think the white marlin which is coming up last year the total purse is like four and change and this year the big rock total purse was over six million yeah so obviously you don't get six million if you win um, if you want everything, you would, but right. nobody does that. But let's see, biggest mahi was it got to five hundred and was it twenty three thousand dollars? Something like that. Five, five over five hundred, over half a million dollars for the biggest mahi. Forty eight uh, and change pounds. Yep, that one took it. Um, yep. And then the fabulous fisherman is the if you enter into it. See, there's multiple there's multiple different divisions, and each division has a different uh, buy-in fee like it costs a different amount to uh to buy into it so, so yeah some are 2500 some are five grand some are like the outboard division which is what we were in was as, as an additional thousand dollars on top of uh just basic entry fee yeah the fabulous fisherman was a five thousand dollar entry and what that is is if you the first boat to boat a 
Marlin, blue Marlin over 500 pounds. If it's 501 pounds and you're the first one, you won. Even if second, the second yep. boat, his fish was a grander and he did, Doesn't he went matter. first. First Doesn't one matter. takes all. Yep. And yep. that was 800 and something thousand. The, it was the a record twenty eight seven fifty. Yeah, it was a record number of boats by fifty boats this year. Wow. So there was two hundred and seventy boats. Um, it was two hundred and twenty, I think, was the biggest, and that might have been last year. I don't remember. Yeah. But um. Well, first day when we were out, what'd they say? Seven boats took a lay day, so two hundred and sixty three boats fished the first day. Yeah, and uh, it the the morning the morning of was we knew it was going to be blowing and it, it was not going to be great weather in the morning, but we were hoping that the forecast was right that it would lay out throughout the day. We went out and we saw like a literal wall of a storm that we just drove straight into and through, and they're about what three four foot seas every seven seconds. Yeah, I think that's what they were calling for. It wasn't. It wasn't terrible. Um, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't you know was bluebird sky place. and right. It wasn't no. ple- pleasurable at all. And obviously, the smaller boat you're in, the the worse that is. Um, and we were in a one. We weren't the smallest, but we were in the smaller size boat by by far. We were you yeah. know thirty six Jeff's thirty six foot yellowfin. Um, hell of a boat. But as far as going out there against sixty eight foot plus. You know, yeah, sport fishers. Eighty foot Vikings. Yeah, like Michael Jordan's eighty uh, foot Viking, the eighteen foot yeah. beam. Um, yep. You know, those are the boats that really doesn't matter the weather. They they can fish it. So, given yep. the weather, given the the weather forecast, we knew that the Fabus Fisherman was going to be one, either day one or day two, and we knew we were going to we were going to lay on day two. So, but day one we went out and. A wall of rain we rode through and then it lines lines in was at nine o'clock so you couldn't your lines could not touch the water until 9 a.m drop lines and then literally within minutes yeah eight minutes i think was the first hookup hooked up and then hooked up hooked up so anytime a boat hooks up on a fish they're calling on the radio to headquarters to let them know hey we're hooked up and they update the app to show whatever boat that was is hooked up. Um, and there was like in the first hour, there was probably, I don't even remember, like at least 10 hookups. And, and most of the hookups for the day happened in the first hour, too. I think yeah, were, absolutely. By far. Yep. And I think in the first 45 minutes, we hooked up on a, um, a mahi and I was putting out, I think I was putting out the dredge. Uh, either the dredge or something on the outrigger and the, the line, the, the reel started screaming. Jess picked up the rods. He said, David, come here and get this. And I was like, hold on, let me get this. I don't give a fuck about that. Come over here and get this. About the time that I took, uh, I took the rod, I reeled down three or four times. That fish jumped 12, 15 feet in the air. Beautiful, like royal blue and white lit up mahi. And then as soon as he hit the water, line went slack and i thought oh he's swimming towards the boat burned the reel down and there was nothing there he was nobody was home after he hit the water he was he was gone and that was the only bite that we got day one day two was was a 
That was the Go only ahead. bite we had at all, wasn't it? Uh, technically bite, yes, but we'll get to that part in a minute. So we get the day two, lay day. We sat around. We should have damn recorded the podcast, but we kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, and the shit kept piling up what we were going to do and getting everybody together, and we didn't do it. And so for that, people, I do apologize um, because I promised you guys a podcast. But we were, we're basically going to do the same podcast minus Jeff tonight. Um, so day two is lay day. We sat around the house, drank beer, hung out for a while. And then uh, day three, we went out much. It was a tale of two days of weather difference. It was glass in the morning, beautiful day, no clouds. We head out. We're hitting about, what, 45 mile an hour, close to 50 mile an hour. Um, And me, me, you, and Sam were on the beanbags. I was almost asleep. Yeah, I had some earbuds in, just jamming to some uh, some music, and uh, all of a sudden, da, 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 da. I was like, oh shit! I about did a backflip out of the damn beanbag, scared to damn death. I just I knew what was happening immediately. The middle motors, so he, Jeff's boat has a trip Yamaha 300s. The middle motor let go, and I was like, that sucks. So we stopped. Turn it over one more time, and it sounded like that. Oh, she's done. So, all right, we're 35 miles out, and we're on two motors. Now, two motors for that boat with the, the weight that we had in it, plus it's just a big-ass boat. It, 600 horsepower is not going to really cut it. But, hey, we were basically in the water that we were wanting to fish anyway. We were, ba- we were yeah. 90% there. We were, we were fishable water. Um, I think I had successfully convinced jeff to run to the east side of the gulf stream try and get out into 2000 plus fathoms right but after that it was like well we're here and this is how it's gonna go yeah i am so that's what we what we did we trolled all day on which mighty trolling speed there's no issue you know um on two motors so we were we trolled all day now, mind you, that's a $30,000 motor that just shit the bed. We've got about $25,000 in buy-ins that we that we all paid in. Jeff obviously paid the majority of the boat share, his share. Um, yep. And then me and you paid our share, and I'm, I imagine Sam did as well. But uh, so there's that, and we did not get a bite all day. But not what was it, an hour after the motor blew, we were fishing, and... We go to reel in the uh, <laughs> reel in the the uh, left side dredge, yep. and there's nothing there. Yep. So we yeah, reel so it in. Go ahead. Those not familiar with a dredge, imagine an umbrella, <clears throat> and coming off the umbrella are rubber squid chains, right? Like six inch long squids, and there's like maybe ten of them on a chain, and each arm of this umbrella, there's six arms, and each arm has two squid chains to it and it's got two tiers worth of umbrella rungs too so there's i think jeff said there's 36 squids on this thing so when you're pulling it through the water i mean it's got a lot of drag on it we're 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 pulling something that's got a good eighth inch steel cable holding it to the boat yeah and if you're a fast fisherman think of a gigantic alabama rig and that is what you have 
Um, and there's no hooks on it. It's just no. There's no hooks. It's it's a it's a a deep if you a deeper swimming teaser. So the teaser is basically the it's trying to accomplish the same thing, but it's on the water, like on the top. The dredge is underneath it, about what six feet underneath the uh, teaser. Um, yeah, something like you, that. You can only see the the dredge when the sun is hitting the water just right or if you're coming over a wave and then so everything comes up elevates uh then you'll see flashes of the dredge um day one we were pulling the bowling pins and we lost a couple that just broke off um but so we didn't run the bowling pins that that those bowling pins got me a couple times oh yeah i kept looking out there got excited and then oh that's right. We're dragging bowling pins, not squid. Yeah, because it looks the, like all you the, see is a flash, and you're thinking it's a marlin yep. coming up underneath the teaser, and yep. it wasn't. It was the bowling pins. But so the, the, the dredge, the, the bowling pins are. There's no hooks. There's no fins or anything. They literally look like wood bowling pins that are painted like a mahi uh, tuna, and there's like eight of them on on a string just wagging along back behind the boat. Right, and it looks so good. Those bowling pins look looked wonderful. That was beautiful. But mm-hmm. so, but we changed out to the the squid chain um, umbrella rig, and we go to reel it in for one reason or another. I don't remember why we were reeling it in, and they're not there. Grass check. Yeah, there's nothing there. They're gone. And we looked at the line. It's 400 pound test line with the crimps. Well, the line is broken on both. A crimp didn't let go. The line is broken post after the crimp. So what the only thing that could have happened was something came up without us being able to see it and whacked the shit out of their bill. Because that's how marlin, sails, all all the billfish, that's how they feed is they go into a ball of bait and go in shaking their bill and they're whacking fish and knock basically stunning them and then they go and eat it once they're stunned so um that's what happened that's a 600 dollar dredge when jeff lost that dredge it was like the straw that broke the camel's back jeff was fucking livid so mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean rightfully so yeah. i get it he just lost a thirty thousand yeah. dollar motor and then a 600 dollar dredge on top of it and mm-hmm. it was, and I was like, oh shit, steer clear of Jeff. I was like, I'm going up in the right. tower. <laughs> I'm going to look for grass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not, I mean, I could see it in his face that he was really upset. And I. You're breaking up a little bit, Joshua. You there? He needed a minute, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You make, you need oh, to go back to wherever me? you were earlier. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're breaking up a little bit. There we are. But I lost oh, your okay. feed too. I can't see you. I just don't see I your. I had to turn that off. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, All right. I was. Uh, the kids could hear me. I was sitting on the balcony outside the master, and uh, I I woke up Benjamin talking oh. out there because his window is around the corner from that. So oh, I ended up going downstairs. But right, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, so when. You know, it, it day two, well, day three, but day two for us was an absolutely gorgeous day. I mean, the water was just as pretty blue as you could ask for. Yeah. Gr- grass was eh, kind of, you know, was some grass we yeah. dealt with. But uh, 
Um, yeah, like 160-something boats fished. But the yeah. fishing, as beautiful as it was, the fishing for everybody sucked. sucked. Well, apparently, that's kind of yep. par for the course. You know, on yep. those kind of days like that, the fishing normally isn't as good. Yep. So, so good for uh, boating, you know, not so much fishing. Yeah. I, I asked CL about it, you know, and after the tournament was over and and said, you know, the, the average hookup rate, um, the release rate was like about 10%. And, you know, and of course, CL knew like to the 10th percent what it actually was for every day because um, he's, you know, he's right on top of that stuff. And, and I said, is that normal for a tournament? He said, no, for this tournament, you know, it's way, way down. Um, you know, people were fishing really, really hard to, to get what they were doing. But you know what? The days, all those end days, everybody did the same thing we did. The first two days were not very good. One fish over 500 pounds was boated in, um, in two days of fishing. Yeah. So what did everybody do? They're making 80, 90, 120 mile runs to get out on the east side of the, the Gulf Stream to go fish where the dinosaurs live. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, on Wednesday, that when, uh, when we got back to the house, we had already been trying to check to see, hey, are there any boats that we can rent? Or is there a captain that can charter us? Because we're, well, we're in the Big Rock, and we can't go back out and limp out on two motors, you know, the, the next day on Thursday, we couldn't do that. Right. So yep. it, there was no, there's no boats available, no captains available, obviously for that week. It's everybody that has a boat is booked up. So, uh, that was it for us. We were done. Yep. So it's uh, However, a learning thing, but it is what it the, is. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was definitely a lifetime experience. It was really cool to be a part of it. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm happy about that. I mean, we didn't win anything, but you know, it is what. It is. One cool thing is, is though, that the next day, CL's boat got first release of the day. Yeah, um, which was so, a five thousand uh, yep. dollar prize. So first, first release of the day, you hook up and you release your fish first. That's an automatic. You win five grand, and yep. it, it was it was cool to hear CL and the heels and reels. Um, Dude, I'm actually wearing my Heels and Reels t-shirt right now. Oh, um, I'm going to have to harass him to get one. Oh, yeah. Well, it's soon it's going to be, uh, what was the name of that? What's the name of the new boat? He told me yesterday. I forgot. No, yeah, the new, well, that was an ocean. The, the Heels and Reels is an ocean, too. It's like a 48-foot ocean. Um, oh, but, that's right. The new one's a 63. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember the, I forgot what it was called. He told me the name of the boat, and they're going to keep it that because it's too damn expensive to change it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was like over $33,000 to change the name of a boat, like on the Be- transfer of the boat. Fuck. Because of the paint job and everything? Yeah. That was in it? Well, because it's under like fucking 12 coats of clear and oh. on w- a wood transom boat, you know. Shit, I got a fucking belt sander and a spray paint can says we can get that off there for an hour worth of work and 25 bucks. Get some primer, just primer yeah. over the lacquer, right. some of the old base, and then just make it right. white, and then you'll come back with the graphics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, hell, Harbor Freight has stick-on mailbox letters. We can make that boat whatever you want. Fuck yeah. I'm going to end up naming my boat the, uh, I'm going to name it Rent Money. <laughs> that's funny. I'm going to name it Rent Money because that's what nice. paid for it. So. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't have a cool transom like there. There is no, really nowhere on the transom to be. It's an outboard motor, you know, and it's right. a 24 foot boat. But I'm gonna put it, I think, on the uh, on the front of the boat, uh, basically the front side of the um, little console box underneath the t top. It's okay. fiberglass and gray painted the boat. I'm gonna get a decal yeah. made. It says rent money. There you um, go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. We, but anyway, uh, so we, we named our little 15 foot skiff and uh, I wasn't going to name it. But, you know, the the boys were pretty adamant, mostly driven by Elijah, because, you know, the, like TL's boats got a name. Jeff's boats got a name. The big boats we saw in the marina, they all got names. Why doesn't our boat have a name? All right. So, you know, figured out. So our boat is named Baby Marlin because it's little. And it's blue. Yeah, I I forgot that you're. I'm there. I don't think I paid attention when I saw your skiff that it was blue. Yeah, the uh, the the interior is white, um, and the bottom the deck, of the hull yeah. is white. Yeah. All What's the blue on inside of the gunnels? The side panels. Everything okay. Above the water line to the lip of the gunnel is all white. Okay. So yeah, we we took it out this weekend actually. Um. You know, my wife is on a girl's trip for a couple days, and I knew that if the boys saw her leave, and then we sat around the house all day and did nothing, that it would be, why isn't Mama home? We want to go with her. You know, it just wasn't, it wasn't a good trip, you know, to leave it. So, weather was beautiful. I had some pressure wash work to get done. I needed to go try out my new pressure washer. So, we pressure washed the boat, cleaned the cars, and then... Um, as we're finishing up cleaning the cars, my wife leaves, we pressure wash the boat. And on a side note, I've never owned a pressure washer before. I will never, ever, ever clean a boat without a pressure washer again. It makes it nice. Oh my God. It looks brand new. And it took me like a half an hour to scrub. Like, you know, so I lived outside all, you know, all winter long and all summer last year. But I always put a cover on it. Like, we were really good about putting a custom-fit cover on the outside of the boat. That didn't stop it from growing, like, black and brown and green shit all over the inside of this thing. Are you putting moisture uh, um, absorbent buckets in there? I did inside the center console, like, the little console on it where the electronics live. But I didn't put moisture absorbing buckets inside the rest of the thing because it's just a... Um, like a cinched down uh, canvas, like rubberized canvas. It's not. I didn't yeah. get it shrink wrapped. Well, no, you don't, you don't even have to have it shrink wrapped to need one of those. So you need to get you need three. You need one where you had one. You need one in the bow, one in the stern, and it'll just it'll help okay. keep that from happening. I'm speaking of covers. I was looking at a, a custom made covers for my boat because I've got a 24 foot skiff. And that costs as much as the damn boat, probably. Yeah, it's a twelve hundred dollars for a mm. boat cover. But mm-hmm. and but the thing is that it goes up underneath the t-top. It doesn't go over the t-top, so air will still be getting in on the inside um, of of the boat. 
Um, but okay. it, so it's not completely like in a condom, basically, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's mm-hmm. got ventilation from yep. underneath the T top. So that'll help with that. But I'll probably still put some yeah. when it's time to winterize it. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll put some buckets in there just for that yep. purpose. Nice. But we, well, we took ours out on a local lake, little Nakamixon's Nock, like one of the larger lakes in the area. And but it's one of the few places that has an engine allowance. It's a twenty horsepower limit lake. Yeah. And most of what's out there are sailboats because it's oriented largely east to west. You get a good prevailing wind down about an eight mile lake. And there's one shot down there where there's you know, pretty much a dead straight shot for probably five miles. So that's pretty pretty populated by like sailboats, um, windsurfers, things like that. And uh, yeah, so I took the boys out, and we just little twenty horsepower Merc put the boys in the cooler, got some drinks, and we put two point six on the engine. I think we spent two of it at near wide open throttle, just down the lake as fast as it would go, turn around down the other way as fast as it would go you know i I let them drive i sat there and you know pennsylvania is really starting to crack down on people drinking beer on motorboats so i figured yeah i know it's not not a good thing to be out with two kids under age 10 blasting down the lake and drinking beer so you know but we had a good time i don't think i've ever been in my boat without beer right this was the first trip <laughs> so yeah, we we went out in the boat this weekend down at the river, our river house. Um Friday or excuse me, Saturday the weather wasn't bad. Wind picked up. It was white capping a little bit, but you know, she the my boat doesn't doesn't mind it at all. Um I was still going yeah, 38 mile an hour across, you know, one one two foot swells which mind you people don't know that when i say one or two foot those swells which i didn't know this until like a couple years ago that that's actually measured at the middle of the wave so if it's a two foot sea it's actually a four foot wave um the bottom right yeah but you measure it from the middle of it to the top yep there was one so before the big rock i drove down to ogre in the middle of may and we fished the ocracoke tournament uh david you, I mean, you weren't there but it was me jeff cl some of cl uh some of jeff's family um and some friends and so we fished that and it was four to five on a seven second period i think there were definitely times where i was sitting and i was looking up at the top of the next wave and going, oh shit. Yeah, it was, that's not fun for anybody. Rough. No, I mean that's not fun. <clears throat> no matter what boat you've got, that's decent. not good. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the kind of. It seems like the shittier the the conditions, the better the fishing, and vice versa. Um, the better the conditions, the worse the fishing is. Um. But yep. it is what it is. But we yep. uh, then we went Sunday. We did the same thing, and then the wind kicked up on Sunday. We we came, brought the boat in, and spent the rest of the day on our beach. Got nice. toasted. Yeah, I mean you can probably still see I've got ra- raccoon eyes. Raccoon My face eyes. is red. Yeah. Yep. So it was it was a good time. 
uh, we're going back 4th of July. We'll be back down there this weekend in our river house and take the jacks out on the tube and get do some tubing and stuff and have a good time. There you go. Yeah. But what, good. so what do we got, what we got coming out of PVA now? Cause we've got, you've got a lot of products and a lot of announcements stuff since the last time you were on. And, uh, yep. let's, let's go and get cracking on that for as far as breaks. So I have, uh, about what I've got four shock waves and one, uh, jet four and, you know, and shooting the shock wave. I don't see I, – I, it's hard for me to imagine – I don't have an Avenger in my hand, but it's hard for me to imagine a brake that works better than Shockwave because that thing is – I mean, you don't feel the – you don't feel the concussion from, you know, as the shooter from the, from the muzzle. It – I mean, my dashers are they, – they don't move. And right. It's, it's just hard to imagine that, okay, well, there's a step beyond this and somehow you did it. So let's talk about the Avenger and what separates it. So the, uh, the Avenger, so the Avenger has a few things that go on in it. Right. Um, and to really understand it, you have to look back at the jet four, the jet four was me sitting down and really putting a lot of thought into what made the jet blast and the shockwave really good brakes? How could we take a one-inch diameter brake and keep that smaller form factor, but get the performance of something like the shockwave? And that was done by really optimizing the ports. Um, they have variable geom—excuse me—variable geometry ports on them, so no two ports as you go down, like left and right. A given set of ports is symmetric, but as you go down, the first port is different from the second port is different from the third port, etc. Right. Um, you know that was done to optimize. We we knew what angles worked really well to cut um, the concussion away from the shooter and give you really good recoil performance. Right. That's in the jet blast and the shockwave. Um. The Jet 4 was done to get a one-inch diameter brake that worked like the bigger form factors, uh, the inch and an eighth diameter size round bodies, some of the bigger ones that are like inch and a quarters that have been decked top, you know, flat so that they're an inch and an eighth across or they're an inch across the top, but they're an inch and a quarter wide. Those bigger brakes, more surface area, more space for the gas to work on, better so you know taking a three port one inch diameter brake if you can get something that performs close to one of those bigger brakes you've clearly got a much more efficient design just because it doesn't have the surface area so the jet four we did that um almost two years ago and it's got a lot more machine work in it it's um it's phenomenal and it was designed to work exceedingly well with anything like 308 and Creedmoor size or smaller. That's what the ports are designed around. It's not meant to go on to 300 PRCs, stuff like that. That's what the, the shockwave's for, right? Right. So we took the, the lessons out of the Jet 4, and um, Jeff and a number of other people are running these, you know, inch 100, 
inch and an eighth, inch 200, inch, inch and a quarter, these massive taper barrels, and they're running them in smaller cartridges, but they want something that doesn't look like, okay, I've got this taper barrel, or this untapered barrel, it's an inch and a quarter, comes out, and then we put an inch and an eighth brake on the end, and it just looks yeah, goofy. Yeah, it does. There's so, their shoulder of the taper on the outside of the brake diameter, even like even the collar. Right. So, yeah, because yeah. these are like See, straight taper barrels. They're inch, they're inch and a quarter stock. It's like, hey – just put a good finish on it. Don't taper it. And right. then you put the, like the jet four on it and it's like a little tiny fucking yeah, thing on the end of it. Be, yep. Like, like the jet four, you put it on a light palma barrel. You're like, Oh, that looks like a big honking break. Cause a light palma is only seven fifty at the muzzle. You put it on Jeff's uh, Hulk cock and you're looking at the jet four. You're like, what's that going to be when it grows up? You know? Yeah, exactly. So, and for people okay. who don't know that what he's talking about, we named Jeff's, straight taper barrel the hulk cock because it is once again like we said a truck axle that he painted zombie green so we called it hulk cock <laughs> yeah. in case people didn't catch that before in another episode <laughs> so so you know like what i started to do was um like okay well jeff had asked a year ago Hey, when you get around to making these things, how hard would it be for you to make something that's like an inch and a quarter diameter? And I'm like, when I get to it, I'll get to it. You know, like, I'm not going to say no. Like, I'd be happy to help you out, Jeff, but I'm not going to make one break. Right? Yeah. Or two breaks. There's just so much setup time and so much programming involved in it. It's like, I'll, you know, I've got to make at least 50 of something for it to ever break even. So <clears throat> we were making a big run of shockwaves beginning of the year, and I looked at it and I'm like, now's perfect time, right? We use the same tombstone, we use an inch and a quarter bar stock. So the Avenger was always going to be the inch and a quarter diameter magnum size break, or you could put it on a on tapered barrel. So there's a cosmetic side of it, and there's you know if we're gonna make a big break, let's make it so it can take the magnums as well. Right. Yeah. The other thing we did was <clears throat> having put all of the uh, mental sweat into variable port geometry on the Jet 4, it doesn't really make sense to just make a, a non variable, you know, fixed angle break for the Avenger. Might as well, you know, if we're going to do it, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So that's where the Avenger came from. It has variable port geometry. So you get the added efficiency in twofold you get it from the variable port geometry that that works better with the de-energized flow as the flow progresses through the brake and you get the bigger surface area so on a dasher i'll be honest i don't think if you're shooting a dasher the avenger is going to do anything for you except cosmetics yeah Uh, if you're shooting that if you're shooting those big barrels yeah if you're shooting those those big straight taper or at least close to a straight taper barrel then yep. yeah, you're not going to see a whole lot of functional gain or what you'll feel with your eyes closed shooting, you know? Right, because the gun the gun probably weighs 24 pounds anyway. You know, the barrel blank by itself weighs 11 on a 26 inch barrel. You know, dashers just don't have the recoil. And the other part of that is they don't have the gas and 33 grains of powder to energize four gigantic ports like that. Right. So um the the other thing we did with the um with the shockwave and the avenger what was i going to say oh 
the shockwave is eight ounces. And because of the improved ports, the larger sizes, the I think the shockwave 7.6 and the Avenger being a much bigger form factor is still only 8.1. So we picked up a half an ounce in weight. So you're not picking up a ton of extra weight because it's a much bigger break. We whittle away a lot of that material. <clears throat> yeah, that's all done in the ports. Yep. So yeah, yeah. that just a lot of a lot of that meat in the middle is 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 machined out in the ports and what gives right. it its ability to mitigate that recoil like it does on the bigger bore stuff on the on mm-hmm. the yeah the bigger rifles that, that makes sense. Um, yep. so, that's all. I mean, I'm gonna have to get my hands on one now. I mean, shit, I don't know what I'm gonna put it on, but right. I don't have to get my hands on one. So. I've, well, like I said, I've got all of my shockwaves on everything other than I've got a Jet 4 as well. So <laughs> I'm running out of barrels. <laughs> get, it, get it up on your 300 Win Mag that we did a couple years back. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the one, honestly, you'll feel the difference. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. I, I'm sure. I've got a shot. I've got a, uh, excuse me, I've got a uh, rocket scientist on that one still. And yep. I will say this, that that break, the, the rocket scientist, which that's what, four breaks ago it's i guess now um yeah that's a 2016 some ish yeah right um uh it it damn sure does still i mean it in its own right it works well but in mm-hmm. a th- in a 300 wind mag i'm not shooting all day right like i would be my right. dasher or 25 cream or six cream or whatever but so the the concussion isn't as great because of the lack of numbers but uh i will say this you do feel it now i don't feel the effects of it because i'm only shooting it very little um it being a right. three and a wind mag no matter what's on the end of it but it definitely works and it but you do definitely feel that and you don't feel it if you throw the uh shock wave on it I, i've never felt the concussion from the break when I threw a shockwave on it. Cause I wanted to see the difference of the rocket scientists yeah. versus that. And as far as mitigating recoil, I mean, yeah, maybe the shockwave it's, uh, uh, it's a measurable, but not a, the, the shooter may not feel it, but as far as the pressure coming back into your shoulder, but you do feel it on your face a little bit, but, um, I will say this. I think the I biggest shot... thing. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, I was going to say the biggest thing that people will notice on the progression of breaks from like the rocket scientist, mad scientist breaks to the jet blast shockwave breaks to the jet four Avenger series is that there there is a step in recoil reduction every step of the way. If you shoot a caliber that can energize the break. Right. So we're not talking about dashers in an Avenger. We're talking about like, yeah, okay, let's, you know, let's shoot a 300 Win Mag or PRC or yeah, at big least 30 cal. 55 grains. Yeah, put put some put some ass behind it, and you got 55, 60 grains of, of gunpowder underneath it, like 3006, 65 PRC, SOM, 7 SOM, stuff like that. You get those, and you go boom, boom, boom down the line. <clears throat> you will notice a progression in recoil back to back to back, and you will also notice the blast on the shooter. And then that's one other thing that the blast on the Jet 4, um, the, the huge leap on the blast of the Jet 4 was was twofold. Um, there was, you know, about 10% more recoil reduction, but a lot of guys don't feel that. What they see is how flat it shoots. And 
around them, around barricades, um, the spotters, people around them at a match will also notice that there isn't that sharp crack. That even the, the shooter is not getting pelted with the with the, uh, the people around them are not getting cut up. And where all breaks, you stick your head through a barricade or in a pipe or something like that. Um, that makes every break feel terrible. The Jet oh, yeah. 4 and the Avenger are noticeably less concussive to the shooter just because with the variable port geometry, you don't get as much of a shot that just happens to all line up. Like, you know, if, you know, if you're in a situation where you're up against a wall, or you're in a shoot house, whatnot, if, you, if you're there where one port lines up, all the ports line up. <clears throat> so you're going to get all three or all four or all five ports. They're going to whop you good. The Jet 4, well, if one port lines up, I can guarantee you that the other three do not because they're all different geometry. And, right. and I think, you know, based on looking at it, we didn't patent the thing because I did a, a deep dive with a patent attorney and we looked at it and, and it was not just a patentability study. It was a protectability study how hard is it going to be to actually maintain it um it took about a year and um there's at least one other major competitor that came out with oh we've got this match series break and it it you know we learned all this stuff and i looked at one and i put it on a comparator i cut one in half and i'm like oh look at that all this stuff that they noticed Look at that. The angles match exactly what we did. So, you know, I knew it was going to happen. And, and it's like I made the business decision. I'm like, I'm not going to spend 50 grand on a patent and then another 50 grand chasing people around over the next. Right. Because that, that goes to what you said about the protectability of the patent. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to buy every break that comes out of the market, cut it in half and measure everything to the hundred thousandths of an inch. No, right. you're not going to do that. So if. Yeah. You know, yeah, it makes you well, you're attorney and you made a good decision of not yep. not investing in that. Hopefully what it'll come down to is you'll have a repeat customer to where, hey, I really like my rocket scientist break or I really like my jet blast break. Um, I felt the benefit of using that. This has got to change to it to so you're supposed to, you know, make shooting more pleasurable than even that break. Let me try that. Or someone word of mouth. Hey, look, this. I mean, so you shoot my rifle and then be like, oh, wow, that fucking break felt awesome. I felt no recoil at all. Yeah, it's a Patriot Valley Arms break, you know, and, right. you know, yep. other, so it's it's you're not going to have too many people that have four different manufacturers of breaks and like, hmm. Which one do I want? Let me measure these and see. You know, you know what I'm saying. So, right, if they're going, yours are going to sell in the same way as that everybody else sells their breaks, either by name recognition, past uh, experience with said company, or you know, a recommendation, recommendation by yep. by somebody else. So that that's how anybody who sells a break is going to sell their next break. So, um, well, I, well, I haven't had one Patriot Valley break that didn't work well. You know. Yep. Yeah. And and there's other people out there that make really good breaks. The the thing that I see coming in right now is there's a lot of stuff that's coming in from overseas that's cheap copies based on pictures. 
and they're selling them on eBay and like things like Etsy and stuff like that. And it's, um, it's, it's a dollars game. You know, they're, they're not made as well. A lot of them are cast, you know, and, and the price is enticing, you know, Oh, look, I can get a self-timing muzzle brake and it's $85. Well, yeah. why would I buy the eighty-five dollar <laughs> one versus the one over here that's one hundred twenty-five or one hundred forty bucks? The one over here that's one hundred twenty-five or one hundred forty bucks is made in the United States. It's machined. It doesn't have runout problems, or it shouldn't. You know, like and 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 that's the product that the reason that the the cheap foreign product exists is because they copied the original. Yeah, and they didn't even do a good job of it. I mean, talk to talk to to Harris and talk to Atlas Bipods. You know, right. go talk yeah. to them about you know overseas. Yeah, green you know, blob. Yeah, know, the green. Yeah, the yeah the, the blob. Yeah, the infamous yep. blob bipod. Yep. Um, and, and so it's you know, that's you the know funny thing is like intellectual property means nothing to at this administration for sure. But even Trump didn't do much with the intel the uh, the in, um intellectual yeah. property rights. You know what are you gonna do? China's gonna be like, oh well, fuck you, and keep doing right. it. And no one's gonna do shit yep. about it. You know, and I don't have a lot of good things to say about the administration prior to Trump, but there were a couple of patent intellectual property patent wins that came out under the Obama administration. Yeah. Um, You know, some of the things with first to file instead of first to invent, um, there were some teeth put into the customs import laws. um, And and I don't know if that was intentional by the Obama administration or it came across their desk and the right people had lobbied for it in Congress to get it through the House and the Senate. And who knows? Like, but credit where credit's due, like you said, right. didn't do a whole lot for it. That's one thing that Obama did sign into law that the intellectual property rights got strengthened um, in some aspects there. Yeah, so, at least at least on this side of the pond, you know. Mm-hmm. But you get yeah, Asia doesn't give two fucks. Oh, they don't give about, two shits, right? No, not at all. Yep. <clears throat> but it, you know, at least it's a it's a little bit easier to keep that stuff out of the country um, now that we have some of those policies in place. So, you know, it is what it is at this would, point, uh, it, right? You know, I, I'm I'm not gonna go send the guy a thank you card, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there, there are real. some improvements in the last in the last 15 years. So yeah. And, you know, the people that are, the people that are listening to and I, I would put my bottom dollar on this. The people that are listening to me and you talk right now are the people that know what we're talking about and would invest in a company like you as opposed to getting the green blob bipod or getting yep. a knockoff break that kind of looks like yours or the next guy's or whatever, knowing it came from fucking. China or Indonesia or wherever else and bullshit or not knowing where the hell it came from. Um, they, they know what's going on. The firearms industry is actually the, the, I should say the consumers of the firearm industry for the most part, they're pretty, they know like what the gig is. They know that this is a problem Mm -hmm. that the firearms industry specifically not, it's not just the firearms industry, of course, but 
they know that it's something that that within our industry that that's a problem. And so, you know, you see I've seen it on Sniper's Hide and back when I was on Facebook and stuff, people like the new guy to a, a forum or a, a Facebook group ask, like, hey, is this bipod any good? And it's the green oh, blob. Yeah. And they're like, no, fuck yep. that. Don't don't spend your fucking money there. That's that's yep. stolen intellectual property. Here's the link to the real one. This spend the money because you're gonna buy three of those blobs to get one that works halfway for a, a, a six months, and then it's gonna break yep. on you. And and so it, it's you would see that you know forums and stuff getting inundated by comments about that. That makes you feel good as someone who is a you know inventor and slash innovator in this industry that you know that your buyers your market are aware of this going on yep yeah and it's got to feel good i mean i wouldn't know from experience because i don't make anything but uh it does yeah it, it does reinforce the idea like okay you know i'm gonna i'm gonna pour blood sweat and tears into this and work my ass off to make a better product so that it can get ripped off by the Asian market and re-imported back into the country. And at least, at least people who see the product come in, they're going to go, I'm not buying the Chinese one, you know? And some people don't know, you know, and there, there are a lot of folks that the dollar rules, right? There's no brand loyalty. They'll buy that $85 buy or that $85 muzzle brake, you know, over the $125 one. I mean, shit, they'll buy the $85 one over the sale special cosmetic blem for $89.99 simply because it's $4.99 cheaper. But by and large, I think people recognize it and they want to buy quality in this industry, especially this niche of the industry, right? We're spending thousands of dollars on rifles, thousands of dollars on scopes, thousands of dollars on fucking reloading gear. And then you're worried about, you know, 25 bucks on a muzzle break. The thing that directly affects your ability to spot impacts or could prevent you from getting migraines from using it. You want to skimp on like, you know what I'm saying? That that person deserves everything they get from that, my opinion. So they deserve the migraines. They deserve the muzzle strikes and, and whatever problems that come with it. So, uh, but you know, one part of the industry that, is my opinion safe from overseas intellectual property theft, uh, but maybe not so domestic intellectual property theft is the bullet game. And you've got, Oh, you like that segue, right? You've yeah, got some, you got some new big bore stuff um, from the, uh, the Seneca line. And uh, I think even the Cayugas, right? Right. Yep. We're doing some stuff in, we're looking at, uh, really focusing on the hunting side of this because let's face it, match shooters are not shooting 45 caliber rifles and silhouettes. Mm. Um, you know, like what the, the Buffalo board knockdown targets for large silhouettes. It's a, it's a micro niche of the industry, but it also has uh, very defined rules. Bullet must be cast, must be made out of lead, must weigh, you know, between this and this, like we're not playing in that game because the rules prohibit <clears throat> turned copper. Right. Yeah. Um, we uh, we did, however, look at um, the hunting side of things where states like Ohio, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, um, you know, the states where the, the topography is typically very flat are also 
states that have gone to straight wall cartridge laws for rifle hunting yeah either they've always been that way or they were shotgun only and then they decided to open up to this side of the market like hey okay well you can have a centerfire rifle but it has to be this you know minimum some of them are minimum 358 some of them are minimum 40 caliber you know um like there's all kinds of various iterations within them but um you know looking at things starting with something as simple as like 450 bushmaster right um 450 bushmaster straight wall case shoots 45 caliber pistol bullets it's you know it's cool it's a short range but you know knockdown weapon um in a bolt gun though we've done some not abnormally fast twist barrels, just rifle twist barrels instead of pistol caliber twist barrels. Right. And um, direct swap in, put a barrel on the front of a TL3 or a Nucleus or an Origin or, you know, whatever. It, we make prefits for like 37 different actions at this point, shouldered prefits. Sure. Put a 450 Bushmaster barrel on there and... Um, I sent a barrel out to a friend of mine, had him test it, sent him a box of ammo. He had 20 rounds of factory ammo to kind of break the barrel in. And he took, I think, like 14 rounds to zero it and then get 100, 200, 300, and 425 yards zero. And just using factory ammo, he shot a half MOA group at 425 yards in Ohio with a bolt action 450 Bushmaster. So previously, he had hunted with um, a 12 gauge with the Hornady uh, slugs, the Sabbated slugs, mm-hmm. which is a you know on the outside 200 round or 200 yard uh, accurate for deer. Right now, all of a sudden, just by still using off the shelf ammo, just by putting a proper barrel on the end of the gun in the right caliber, now he's doubled his effectiveness. So yeah, and who's really I mean deer the white tail deer hunting. I, I can understand elk and, and sheep, maybe not even sheep, but elk and, and mule deer, those those can extend further past that. But whitetail, I mean, 450, that's what most people, a lot of people wouldn't even dream of shooting at a deer at 450. And, <clears throat> right. you know, it's uh, so you're definitely in a wheelhouse of anything that you would need in these states especially compared to what you priorly use or were able to use. So you've, like you just said, essentially just doubled, easily doubled your distance, if not more yep. than what you typically would have. Yeah. So w- w- we did that. The other thing that we've done, we're waiting on um, an updated reamer actually right now, 458 wind mag to test just because, um, it's a pain in the ass to do bullet testing focus muzzle loader because there's so much time in between shots but you shoot the same bullet um smokeless muzzle loader or a you know a 458 wind mag 458 lot you know those those big bore african calibers they don't want you to shoot deer with a 3006 in ohio but you can shoot them with a 9,000 foot pound 458 lot they don't care um so uh working on some solids for hunting designs that are you know like low 300s high 275 300 grains getting some testing done where we're looking at varmint caliber speeds 32 3300 feet per second um 
ballistic coefficients that are in the same kind of realm as six and a half millimeters and mm. big bores. So now they're legal in those states. You have effective range on animals um, for expansion speeds with the, you know, the expander features and the bullet and the nose uh, to be able to, to very reasonably take animals at 12, 13, 1400 yards. Mm. Accurate. Um, yeah. So, you know, like I said before, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And um, if you can, is it the, the thing to go out there and, you know, go on a doe mission for three or four doe one afternoon and try and shoot them at 1200 yards? No, I don't, I don't think that's what people are using it for. But, yeah. um, you know, hunting a cornfield where they've got a 600 yard opportunity on a, an enormous deer that they would never normally get that shot on. Now the opportunity is there. Now they can take it because they've got a rifle that, you know, that's only half the effective range of the gun. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you're instead of, you know, that, you know, in these states, in fact, all the states that we're talking about here are absolute trophy whitetail states. Mm-hmm. I mean, instead of having that yeah. potential once in a lifetime trophy walk out of your life, it's taking a ride in the back of the truck because <laughs> now you've got something that puts you on par with the ability with people in states like where I live in, where I, hell, I can shoot whatever rifle I want at whatever distance I want. You now have the ability to do the same because, I mean, I can imagine living in some of those states being like, fuck, you know, we've got the deer here. I, I would do anything to be able to have the, as many opportunities on my deer as people do in these other states. Now, now you've got that. And yep. uh, that's a, it's a complete, I hate the term game changer because it's so overabused. It's abused. Yep. Um, but it, it really is. I mean, if you're like going from what you said, like 200 yards max where you're like, fuck 200 yards, I'm, I'm kind of pushing it. Now you're like yep. 500 shit. That's right. A, a walk in the park. Yep. And now that deer is on your wall, you know? Yeah. And we've, you know, I've, uh, I've got a pretty good relationship with the guys out at Arrowhead, um, out in Arizona. And they did a lot of pioneering work on getting smokeless muzzle loaders into things. Um, and we've started doing barrels. We've got, uh, you know, 16 twist, which is, which is a little on the fast side. 18 to 20 is typically the 458 twist rates. Um, but 16 twist gives us some extra margin. It shoots really well. Uh, Luke and his, and, and they've done a great job at extending the effectiveness of the smokeless muzzleloader world. Um, but now with a new bullet, um, and we've been making breaks with those guys for a while. So, you know, we're talking about elephant guns here, right? Like a 458 lot in a 14 pound rifle still has some. You cut out a little bit, bud. You there? You need to go back wherever you were. The nineteen oh the World War One spec ball. Oh, did I lose you? Yeah, I lost you. I lost you at basically elephant gun and four fifty eight lot. Oh, okay. All right. I think we're back now, right? Yeah, we sound good now. Okay. You stay put. <laughs> I'm sitting still. My phone hasn't moved in Oh wow, minutes. okay. Yep. Um, well, so 
the, the 458 lot has something like 100 or 110 foot-pounds of recoil energy. And to put that in perspective, the steel butt plate Springfield 1903 with World War One spec 3006 ammo, uh, I want to say that was something like 26, maybe 30. So you're talking about three to four times the recoil of what people already know is a mule kicker. Right? Oh, yeah. Putting <clears throat> putting a shockwave on the end of it makes it so that it's a very functional gun to shoot. Right. Um, I dabbled with it a little bit. I borrowed a smokeless muzzle loader from a friend this year, used the ASG kit, threw one of my shockwaves on the front of it. Um, they are half minute capable. If you can load, you know, like ES of nine rifle ammo on a press, those same kind of policies come over. You can load, you know, three shot ES of five muzzle loader ammo, um, and have a half MOA 500 yard muzzle loader. And I, I took a doe in muzzle loader season for the first time in my life ever. I got a deer in muzzleloader season because where I get to hunt, iron, you know, like buck corn iron sights on a flintlock with a round, uh, you know, a lead ball, 50 caliber lead ball in it. I'll take a 100-yard shot. I'm not taking a 200-yard shot, and I'm sure as heck not going to take a 500-yard shot. I dropped a doe in one shot at 484 yards this year, and it landed like within an inch of where I was aiming. Yeah, I mean, and even so, yeah, like you're talking about extreme spreads and stuff. I mean, I've got ammo that I shoot that I've got extreme spread. I mean, and it may be different with the the different weights and everything, but I've got ammo that I'm shooting with an extreme spread of fucking 45 feet per second that I'm still able to print small groups at 500 yards. You know, when you're in that side, that 500, 600 yard game, your extreme spreads, there's still a lot of margin. As long as it groups good, you know, you're still within a pretty good margin of error on a target, uh, especially like a eight inch kill zone on a, on a deer. Um, mm-hmm. and yep. so, and, and then like you said, the damn energy that these fuckers have the, on, on target. I mean, you could just about blow half a damn deer and you go cut a deer yeah. in half with it. So yep. I mean, and that's, that's actually that experience heavily influenced what I was doing, what I'm doing with the solids, because that animal I hit, uh, slightly high and right behind the shoulder where I was aiming, but up towards the spine, basically from four inches behind the shoulder to four inches in front of the shoulder, there was no back strap, no rib meat, no shoulder meat. The front half of that deer was destroyed because the bullet that hit it um, it hit, it flattened it, but it also basically grenaded and oh, yeah. it, it, it absolutely destroyed the deer. So, you know, like we can get good expansion out of the solid, um, you know, at lower velocities, but because it's got the integrity of that piece of copper holding it together, it will still, it, it still doesn't have that explosive effect on the 150 pound whitetail. Um, you don't want a varmint bullet on something that you're going to eat like that. So, oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had discussions with people well, my optimal bullet goes in six inches and then explodes and it never exits. And then the deer drop there. And I'm like, yeah, but 
you know, I, I shot a lot of deer in the last two years with solids developing, you know, six and a halfs and, you know, and bigger stuff. If I'm out looking for does to fill a freezer, I don't want to have to shoot six of them to get three deer worth of meat. Yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, it's, that's, um, making you work harder, not smarter for mm-hmm. the same amount of meat for sure. Uh, I actually and, just shot an eighth and ninth doe tonight <laughs> on the oh, yeah. depredation permit. Oh yeah. I had 18 bucks in my field, which I can't shoot bucks nor would I want to, but they are, they got about 12, 13 inch high racks, uh, in velvet right now. But, uh, I had mm-hmm. 18 bucks I counted last night. And then I think there was about 12 of them today and then a handful of does and, uh, put one of them in the, or two of them in the dirt this evening um but uh yep. yeah but you know for for meat hunters and stuff like that you're you're wanting i mean you, i know guys and probably you do too uh that are i don't ever fuck with the damn rib meat but i know people who do and they like mm-hmm. hey i'm making jerky out of this i'm you know this is mm-hmm. going to go in a burger you know we, so you're, you're wanting it. to maximize you know the your harvest if, if that's if you're a, a big meat hunter i mean when i shoot a couple deer three four five six a year during deer season, uh, I get enough deer meat and it suffices me, but I know people that literally, they do not buy meat. They don't. Right. We, we don't, we, so when the COVID bullshit started, um, we had not bought anything other than chicken at the grocery store in something like six years to the point that if I eat a burger in a restaurant, there's so much grease in a burger that my stomach hurts like within 45 minutes um it tastes so good when you eat it though it does but it just it there's so much grease in it that i'm not used to it because we eat venison all the time like i mean that's the red meat um so we you know my mom called me i didn't know what was going to go on with deer season this year in pennsylvania because when all the lockdown bullshit hit pennsylvania right within a couple weeks of that I got a notice from Alaska Fishing Game. Hey, your fishing license is canceled for this year. Here's your money back. Hope you got returnable flights. Because I was supposed to go up and fish the Eagle River with a friend of mine for the salmon run. And I was looking at that, and I'm like, well, there goes the salmon trip for the year. What's going to happen in Pennsylvania? One of my parents' neighbors is a a beef farmer. So we bought a half a cow from them. Um, And it took a full year to get that cow. Well, you know, luck being what it was, everything worked out. Um, Elijah got a deer. I got a muzzleloader deer. I got four more deer with, you know, with a rifle, all does. So we got six deer in the freezer. My in-laws got some. My wife's aunt and uncle got some. Um, a tool salesman who comes over, you know, he got some because we all of a sudden we had more deer than we knew what to do with. And because I was hunting with solids, I think the longest one ran like, 45 yards before it piled up double lung she didn't go very far but what i noticed was like i'm getting more meat off of a 130 140 pound animal that's been shot with a solid than i traditionally get off of a 200 pound buck that i shot with like a six millimeter burger that grenades yeah oh yeah so you know so we had we had a full freezer and i didn't have anywhere to put it then Two months after deer season's done, I get a phone call from the farmer. Hey, you got 400 pounds worth of beef here. Uh, <laughs> it'll be ready on Saturday. 
oh shit so you know now bought, bought another freezer and i'm looking at the meat I'm like yeah this the stuff's delicious but there's so much marbling in it that it tastes great and I, I don't like to eat it i just my tastes have changed yeah the marbling which you know i'm i'm a big ribeye guy and that's really the only mm-hmm. steak i'll eat is a ribeye i mean the more marbling there is in a steak the better it tastes but that also meant that was probably the most unhealthy cow in the pasture <laughs> right i mean right. that's just i mean that's like going to mcdonald's or walmart and seeing your local fat fuck and then opening them them up and seeing what's inside i mean that's the equivalent of what a, a fucking delicious marbled steak is um and i mean you're talking you go to a restaurant that's got really good burgers i can guarantee you it's at least 70 30 uh fat content in the right. um in the burger whereas you know you ha- obviously to make deer burger you have to add fat from a cow or a pig you know because we've got Yep. The burger that I get um, mostly now is from my uh, when I my uh, meat processor is called Bacon Burger because he doesn't cut it with oh, beef fat he okay. cuts it with bacon fat so his burger cut okay. with it's deer burger cut with bacon fat and it is fun fucking nomical it is so good um, yeah yep. and we it, but you we have get to a add straight that grind yep I I believe it we get a straight grind. Um, because I, you know, like if you get a straight grind, you process a deer for like $90, mm-hmm. you get them to start grinding in fat. You start doing special cuts. You do salami, summer sausage. I mean, I can get four deer processed on a straight grind and plus steak, as opposed to getting all these other cuts done. So we get that stuff done. My wife got me a sausage making kit for Christmas and we make our own venison sausage. Um, Jeff Wood, who's, uh, you know, some of the guys on Sniper's Hide and Instagram will know him as Coldboard Miracle. He gave mm-hmm. me a killer recipe. And it's dirt simple. Just an absolutely killer recipe for, um, you know, mule deer, or elk, or, or venison, you know, whitetail sausage. Yeah. And, um, and we actually make burgers without adding a lot of fat to them. Um, I put in one egg for every pound of meat and uh, I take a little bit of panko breadcrumbs and some whole milk and I soak the breadcrumbs squeeze them out and mix them in so it does you know like for those that are on keto my dad started doing keto dude my dad's like 62 I think he said he weighs the same now as he did when he graduated high school yeah it works you know he uh, lost something like 73 pounds in the last year Oh, wow. Holy oh, shit. Right. It works. I, yeah. I did it. Yep. I keep saying I want to do it. And then, you know, the sh- like three miles down the road from the shop is this Italian place where oh, we on went a first name basis with everybody in the place. They all know who I am. Yeah. Yeah. You've been there. You've been. Yeah, I've been there. It was, it was pretty fucking delicious. Yeah. Um, I loved it. Uh, but I mean, you know, back to what we were talking about, the. They not all bullets are created equal. I mean, and then not only that, but look at let's forget performance. Let's forget that. Let's just pretend all performance is the same. Good luck finding Burger 140 hybrids, Burger 105 or 109 hybrids. 
uh, right. Sierra, what it, that you, I mean, this whole, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. a, a by design somehow, but with the pandemic at well, the pandemic, the damn <laughs> civil unrest last year, the run on ammo and components, everybody's like, Oh shit, I better start. I'm going to start loading my own ammo. Now I'm going to buy up all mm-hmm. this shit and start. Loading. Yeah. You, you, you can't, can't find, find fucking bullets. Dies. You can't find dies. You can't find, you can't find anything involved in reloading or uh, ammo in general. You know, as long as there's copper, PVAs will have bullets. As long as right. copper exists, which copper will always exist because it's used in so many other things, you can buy a bar stock and, mm-hmm. you know, PVA can can produce you bullets. So if I want, hey, I want a whole barrel's worth of solids uh, for a match use or for uh, one of my hunting rifles, I want to just have all the ammo I want loaded for my, you know, 300 win mag or my 300 prc pva is gonna have bullets because the copper is not stopping you well know? and and the other thing is you know like copper is not stopping but copper is also at record highs in cost now too um if you sure. watch the london metals exchange copper is barking on ten thousand pounds a metric ton ten thousand dollars a metric ton Whereas 16 months ago, 18 months ago, when I started making bullets, it was more like $6,100 a ton. Yeah. So it, it, price has gone up substantially, but it's still available. And more and more and more states are going to lead-free hunting on public land. I was going to bring that up. Cali. Lead. You know, oh, yep. We're... we're Yeah, you're breaking up again, brother. And, and the big thing was, once you get... Uh, let's try this again. I'm almost done with this cigar. I think I'm probably going to move again in the house uh, once I finish the cigar. How you doing now? Yeah, yeah I got you now. Okay. Um, once you get California, a lot of the other states look at it and go, well, if it's not certified here, but it's certified in California, then we'll take California certification. So, so we, you know, we got that, we got the whole line certified, um, and adding onto it's really easy. It's like, Hey, we, you know, we got another weight and size, the same process, same material. They don't care. You know, we're good to go. Um, so, you know, while the stuff gets more expensive, private ranges are going to lead free. The U S military is going to red free, lead free. Um, a friend of mine today that works inside a, uh, DCMA, he called me and he said, I just, you know, he goes, I know ammo is hard to find. Uh, I just had something come across my desk. There's 50 million rounds of M855 loaded with SS109s, legit green tip. They're they're dumping it. It's 68 cents a round. They're getting rid of it. Holy shit. And I was like, well, why? He goes, because the military ranges are going to lead free because it's so costly to reclaim and maintain the rain for lead seeping into groundwater that the military is getting rid of lead ammo oh i didn't i've never heard that wow that's amazing right that was news to me today and i was like well what's the what kind of quantity will they break up that 50 million rounds in he's like oh you gotta buy 10 million rounds at a time i was like yeah oh shit (laughs) yeah uh when i have 6.7 million dollars laying around uh i'll call you (laughs) yeah well you know that's okay because old biden uh, uncle joe's gonna sell it all to china Mm -hmm. sell all of our fucking ammo to china but i mean 
that's crazy. I had no idea the military was looking at doing that. Um, yeah, I, I I knew that some of the special forces teams um, had gone to copper in uh, in five five six ammo because they wanted something that was barrier blind. They didn't they didn't want to have to worry about windshield glass or light brick or you know cinder blocks or shit like that. They wanted a, an M4 to be effective for anti-personnel, no matter what the guy decided to hide behind. Yeah. Um, so, so they've been using it for a while. And, um, but yeah, it was news to me today. I found out that there's shit. You want to shoot legit green tip. There's 50 million rounds about to come on the market. You know, I wonder if, I wonder if Theus kind of had a inside look at that. Maybe that's why he's pushing so hard to, he's, he's, you know, offering the barrel strictly for solids and using your solids, using the Senecas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, he so I'm, I'm thinking he told me that he's he's liking them so far so um i wonder yeah. if he knew knew that that to kind of put an emphasis on the solids um because he because that's interesting because you know the the hoplite arms rifle is going to be geared towards you know dot gov purchases for the most part of on company co- accompanied with civilian purchases so i wonder if, I wonder yep. if he knew that i don't know that's crazy though i mean that's that's cool, especially if you start talking about you know, you know, 300 Norma or or stuff like that, 338 Norma and and you know whatever military now they're going to these big solids. Man, you're talking about extending range capability, you know, with a right. high BC solid. That's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, and the you know the incredible performance benefit that you get out of them is one thing. Going to lead free. I mean, as taxpayers, for me, I'm excited because now maybe there's going to be a push where the military will actually pay attention to the technology improvements instead of just looking at like, oh, we can buy a, a Barnes, you know, we can buy this TTSX that was designed in 1985 and it hasn't changed since then, right? Now maybe yeah. they're going to look at it and, and go, okay, well. Who's on the cutting edge, you know? Right, right. So, um. You know, so that's exciting. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if Theus knew any of that. Um, you know, he never mentioned any of that side of things to me. He just wanted to talk pure performance. You know, right. how do we make these things work so that we can get performance that is nobody else has got it. Right. right. <clears throat> um, yeah. You know, and, and I'm sure Uncle Joe sell that shit to China too. You know. Yeah. Well, but, hey, but hey, shout out to anybody listening to this that's involved with procurement for the military. Um, <laughs> hit up PVA. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hit up PVA right. and, yeah. and, and, and Hoplite Arms for, for your rifle, and then PVA for your uh, bullet needs. All your bullet yeah. needs. So. So what else we got coming out of PVA? Yeah, they're they're because, pretty cool. Like so, something that I've wanted to do. Like the bullets were a big push for the end. I spent two years doing process development and validation um, with the bullet stuff uh, external to what we were doing with Warners. Um, And Warners knew about all of it. You know, we were just trying to figure out ways to get these things onto equipment where the, the, the equipment to, you know, one installation of a lathe and bar feeder didn't cost me. $400,000. Right. Um, you know, to, to get it to where, because 
the cost of the equipment is a major component of the cost. You know, like you have the bullet cost in copper, which right now is the highest variable cost. Um, and then the next one is the cost of the equipment and the footprint in the shop that it's going to go on. Because once you set them up, like right now, this, my Swiss is running, um, you know, the, the new 22 caliber tack bullet. I've been home with my son since 530 tonight. And, you know, but the machine's been running since two o'clock this afternoon and it's going to run until about six o'clock in the morning making bullets. And so once it's set up and running, there's very little people cost in it. There's just a lot of uh, equipment, overhead and material cost. Material. So how can we, you know, and I can't control the material cost, but I can do something to try and, you know, maintain the quality but doing on equipment doesn't cost 400 grand. So it'll be in 400 grand for a machine that can make, you know, 700,000 bullets a year, $400,000 can buy, um, you know, three machines that can make a million bullets a piece. Now we're talking about something where it's a scalable, viable process for the general market. So we spent, um, I started chasing that in 2017, put a lot of effort into it in 19, and managed to get it up and running, you know, in early 20. Something that that uh, took a back seat while I was doing that was getting our own barrels. Um, not that I'm in any way unhappy with what we get from Rock Creek and what we get from Lothar Walther for the rimfire barrels, but I wanted something that was ours. Um, so we we are there, and the uh, the the new barrels are going to hit, you know, Mailchimp and the forums and stuff like that. Um, and production's small for right now. We're doing 100 barrels a month. Um, Osprey Barrel Works is doing a um, a very high quality 416 stainless uh, barrel. And the the thing, you know, we're a pretty lean operation in terms of people. Um, if I'm going to do something, I will test bench it where it's person intensive. But when it's in production, it needs to be mostly the equipment. It needs to be bulletproof in terms of um, who can run it, how it can be run, that kind of thing. It's got to be done on a on a on a an automated scale. Sure. So, um, you know, there there's we can get into button versus cut. Uh, we can get into how do you lap, what materials, what stress relief, are you cryoing, all that other things. But the the real secret to a lot of this stuff is it's fully CNC produced and it's a micro honed finish before we do anything to do the rifling. So they're drilled, they're reamed, um, and they're micro honed and the micro honing takes you from like a drilled hole is it's, you know, it's always undersized might be plus or minus. Um, well, it's typically minus nothing plus two thousands. And then you ream it and you can hold on the ream size around a half a thou <clears throat> so typically a reamed hole in um, a more pr- traditional traditionally uh, produced barrel is reamed undersized and then it gets pre-lapped and that pre-lapping is done to control the shape and the size of the hole so you don't have any tight spots and you have a nice round hole the micro honing gives you just like doing engine cylinders right you'd never build a race engine without a honed cylinder right. well we're building race car engines here right that's that that's kind of what we're doing we're, we're doing something that's going to peak performance so the micro honing will control the hole less than a tenth 
for 27 inches and they're damn near dead straight. Um, I'm amazed at how straight these things are. So uh, there's a lot less curvature in the bore. The holes are super consistent. Um, and then we're buttoning. And the reason that I'm buttoning is uh, I've done lots and lots of research, lots of talking to people who make both kinds of barrels, lots of looking on my own. And Cut Rifle makes a really good barrel. But what I've come to conclude is that the reason cuts are so good is because they require so much lapping and so much picking over to have a finished product mm-hmm. that you you find the mistakes and you can fix the mistakes in them before they go out to the customer. Comparing something like a premium grade lapped barrel or a premium grade cut barrel to a generic blank button barrel is really like an apples and watermelons comparison, but that's like what a lot of the internet wants to do. Right. Uh, they, they tell you, okay, well, button barrels, they're, they're softer, they're not as good, they're not as consistent, right? If you told that to Benchmark, um, I think you would probably hurt a lot of feelings over there because, I mean, Benchmark holds a lot of, a lot of world records and they make button barrels. Yep. Benchmark also hones. Right? They control their hole. And um, we've done, we did a lot of work with Rock Creek to get a very, very good button barrel. And what I've noticed as I cut a lot of buttons and I start looking at the cuts is um, buttons typically depth of the groove versus tops of the lands, super, super, super consistent. In the cuts, they're a lot less consistent. And I believe that to be because you have 200 to 240 passes of a cutter rifling head going back and forth, scraping away material. Then you're lapping it, you know, to polish it up and to get rid of the chatter from the accordion chip, the the shaping operation. And that lapping causes inconsistency. And two different guys will not lap the same. One guy who laps the same thing every day, day in, day out, you can get very consistent, very good barrels out of them. Um, and, And this is not a knock on, you know, the high end cut rifled guys. They make great freaking barrels. But what's the lead time on a Bartland, a Krieger, a Proof, a Hawk Hill? Those guys make awesome barrels, and their reputation is well-earned. Their lead times are like a year right now. Yeah, at least six months from what I actually read tonight. Sounds like six to eight months if you're waiting on a, on a blank from, mm-hmm. from Bartland, I believe is what the ones they said. Yep. Well, yep. and see, so, it's just what you're talking about is basically the difference. The difference in the two isn't what separates them the most as far as one better than the other isn't the process in which they're cut or you know either pulled button or cut it's what happens after the uh, fact when to finish the process of a cut right so yeah it's it's, it's like it's, a, the, it's the prep and the hold control the geometry going into the rifling process is extraordinarily important it's not the rifling process itself. And that's important, but it is in, in what I can see in reading Cliff LeBounty's book and, you know, hours of investigation and, you know, <laughs> at this point, um, three figures worth of test barrels. Cut and button, if they are made to the same quality standard, they're invisible. Barrel life, they're the same. 
I mean, I, I, there's a lot of people out there that will remember a few years ago that the, all the big brand name cut guys, all of a sudden barrels were lasting really, really short period of time. While there was a batch of steel that went through the industry, everybody got some steel. It was all fucked up. And everybody's barrels, while they shot good, they lasted terribly. Well, they want to blame um, that on it. Oh, it was a button, not because it wasn't a cut, a cut it, barrel. No, and that right, and and the cut guys got it as well, but they weathered that storm a lot better on the internet than the button guys did because people were predisposed to say buttons are softer, they're not, you know, they're not up to the same spec, blah blah blah. Um, in the last four years, we've done somewhere around seven thousand button barrels and the collated data on that if you you hold it to the same material spec as the cuts there's an invisible difference there's there's you know like it's in the noise i guess is what you would call it um for how long a barrel is going to last you know the cheap barrels the stuff that's not well taken care of the more commodity stuff yeah, okay, they're making soft barrels because they're easier to contour, they're easier to drill, they, the buttons last longer, same thing. You know, if you made cut rifle barrels out of that stuff, they might only last 700, 1200 rounds, you know, on a six and a half or a six millimeter. Um, so what we're doing is, you know, there's a very tight spec on the material. Um, the Everything's 100% CNC produced. They get a final check lap at the end that's sort of just like a, an idiot check. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a very, very high quality barrel. Um, Jeff's got one. Aaron Hip's got one. I sent one to Sean Utley. Um, a few other people around the, the country have them. Most of the stuff went to gunsmiths. I think Jeff is the only one that got an actual prefit out of it um, yes. for obvious reasons. Right. But everybody right. else, I sent, uh, you know, a contoured barrel off to the gunsmith and I said, you know, new barrel, new brand. Tell me your thoughts on it universally things came back they cut beautifully uh they were very very straight they're impressed at how straight the barrels were um very little curvature and um because they knew they were you know they're going to be put on the spot as far as what you think about the internals everybody bore scoped them and they said with without exception the interior of this barrel is the nicest most consistent crispest lands we've ever seen um, nicer than a lot of the big brands that are out there. And, and I said, well, would you believe that that's because the barrel is, is almost not lapped. All of the work for hole control is done with a hone prior to rifling. And then, um, you know, the, the, really we're just knocking a patina from, from uh, final stress relief out of the barrel with the lapping at the end. So you're not getting those, you know, 300, 400 strokes of five different kinds of lapping compound you know, that rounds out all the corners. Sure. Um, and it, and it made a lot of sense to the gunsmiths that I talked to. Um, the, the other thing that, uh, we, we did was I tested them. I've tested barrels in some threes, but threes were, were rather finicky four, five, sixes, and eights in grooves. And we get five R's from rock Creek. They shoot great. Um, these are sixes and the reason these are sixes is because between a five and a six i couldn't see any different with stuff like 105 hybrids 140 hybrids um 130 eldm stuff like you know more uh conventional weights in a jacketed bullet 
where we did see a marked improvement was being able to go to um, a six groove with crisp lands in things like 150 Sierras, 156 Burgers, uh, 195 seven millimeters, you know, these really heavy, heavy caliber for, for caliber cartridges. Stuff, yeah. Right. And, and people are shooting them faster and faster and faster. Right. NRL hunter series, you know, the most prob- prevalent thing that we're getting asked to build, Hey, I want a six and a half PRC or six and a half SOM, um, or like a seven Sherman. Right. And I want to shoot this super heavy fucking bullet because I want, power class and i want to buck the wind because i know these matches are going to be longer shots lower round count i'm going to shoot a short short action magnum cartridge um you know so so going to the six groove gave us a performance edge with those really heavy bullets and it also gave us a performance edge with the solids where um solids have a higher shot start initiation pressure than a jacketed bullet of the same weight because it's a harder material you know, right. it's it's not it's not harder in terms of the jacket material versus the copper in the solid. It's harder in terms of that jacket material is a shell with soft lead inside of it as opposed to there's less deform- yeah there's less deformity of the bullet with the with the uh, the solid mm-hmm. right on right. initial entry to the yep. to the lands. Yeah. So so in doing all of this, being that I've spent way too much time digging into how to make a bullet out of a piece of copper bar. Um, now I'm, I'm digging into, you know, uh, how do we make a really, really good rifle barrel to make it work with what's going, you know, where is the trend in the industry? Six groove was where it was at, uh, you know, and that, and it's been, the performance has been phenomenal. Um, you know, so uh, we're going to launch those, you know, MailChimp forums, social media, stuff like that uh, for 4th of July Independence Day sale. We always do a Freedom from the Crown sale. Um, and, you know, so now we have uh, the Osprey Barrel Works is going to be available. Um, you can still get Rock Creeks They're, You know, the, the Rock Creek buttons are a great barrel. They're less expensive um to produce so the prices on those are going to stay the same the ospreys are coming in you know at the same price as a premium cut barrel but they're you know and they're available so the intro pricing on them um is going to be about 10 percent off and um you know i think what we're going to do is like uh if you buy more than one there's going to be an incentive towards like uh you know you buy two blanks we're going to do 50 dollars off um, you know, like a $50 store credit towards a muzzle break or a bullet order over $100, you know, something like that to, to help get them on the market. Because while, um, I, you know, I've put some out there in the media and with some well-known gunsmiths and some good shooters, the more that we can get them on the market, the more people will experience it. Because I can tell you all day, this barrel is awesome there's always going to be trepidation in the market for people to adopt a new barrel or a new whatever when the company says it works, as opposed to a lot of that trepidation goes away when several other people are like, yeah, I tried it. It was great. Everything they told me that it was going to do, it did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it'd be like seeing whatever said uh, gadget gizmo on an infomercial like, oh man, look mm-hmm. how good that thing does. That company, uh, 
showed a really good demo of that and then you get it and it doesn't fucking work. It doesn't. Right. You're always worried about that. You have that that hesitation to buy and, and yeah, and the new kid on the block is always, you know, especially when you got such established barrel manufacturers out there, you're the new kid on the block and you know, there's going to be people like, Hey, fuck it. I'll give it a try. Uh, and then there's people right. going like, Oh, well I like what I've got until they see it with their own eyes or, you know, yep. hear it from someone whom they, they trust their opinion on, you know, they could, they could be hesitant, but yeah, yep. uh, I'll tell you yep. what kills me is not to backtrack, but what kills me is the argument of cut versus button right over there i've got i don't even know how many barrels i've got uh from you and they're all rock creeks and i know some are cut and some are button i can't remember which or what and i'll tell you they're equally accurate i mean in every rifle barrel i've ever gotten for every caliber and rifle that i've got it for has been a i mean I hate the cliche. It shoots out, shoots me or shoots better than I can, but it, it fucking does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yep. it, it makes me look good, you know, and it, it makes me feel good as well. So it's, yep. um, the, I, I, I hear people quite often, uh, even people that I know are like, no, well, I'm staying away. That's a button barrel. I'm staying away from that. I only get cut barrels. I'm like, you right. don't even know why you only get cut barrels. You are yep. getting cut barrels. Cause you heard someone on the internet say, cut barrels are better than button when it's not the case at all. I mean, it's the reason why I've got some cut and some button is because when I called you for a barrel, that's the blank you had on the shelf. I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll send, send it to me. And right. it, yeah, oh, I never, it's going to be a good barrel. Yeah. Right. I've never asked for a cut or a button. Uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, I get to a point to where, Hey, give me a button because I know it's cheaper for you than, than a cut is. So, right. and I'm that, yeah, send that one to me. Cause I know it's going to be just as accurate and last just as long. It's going to clean just as easy. It's going to foul in just as easy. All, all of that stuff, the barrel life, it's all going to be the same. If it, if it was, if it doesn't, then something was wrong with that barrel right. before well, and, it became and, a cut or button. And at the end of that, if something's wrong, it's going to get warranted. Sure. You know? Um, Absolutely, and 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 we take a pretty we take a pretty cut and dry approach to that. Um, we have our barrel suppliers that we have good relationships with, that we have a consistent running supply of stuff. Like right now, um, you know, I'm I don't have any 25s, I don't have any 30s. Um, I've got 22s, sixes, six fives, sevens, three thirty eights, and you know, like Joe and I did some inventory over the last couple of weeks as we were moving stuff around in the shop. Take it. I got 400 barrels on the shelf in the shop. Yeah, Call there's not a lot of Smiths right, right now, now can do that. Yeah, you just so, took the words in my mouth. Yeah, you. Good luck finding someone who's got 400 barrels in their hands. Right. And and at that point, you know, like the we're out of 25s if somebody calls me up and like hey you know i got this 25 creed more and i'm having a lot of problems with it unfortunately it's very hard for me to replace that guy's barrel right now because i don't have them they have they just they don't produce them very often um you know as cool as the 25 is and this is not me knocking 25s at all but as cool as that thing is it's still not the mainstream caliber like six millimeters. No, 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 no. Um, and I don't know that it ever will, but I think it's a good enough. 
I mean, because you know that you've cut two for me. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the cal- the cartridge, whether it be with the new uh, Fast Twist 25s that are available, I think it sh- it has the um, it should have have the right to be the it's got the viability to be a mainstream cartridge, but it just hasn't caught on yet because you know this little six sixes and six five been around forever. Again, yep. the new to fast twist twenty fives or the new kit on the block. It's the same thing what we were just talking about with barrels. Same thing with the twenty five. And I mean, Burger's yep. got one now. Uh, of course, you got the the blackjack guys. You've got the yep. um, the Senecas and the Cayugas um, that are fast twist, ready to go, high, super high BC bullets. They they on their own two feet stand up to and, and surpass most six and six five ballistics, um, if not all of them. Um, but you're right. Right now, uh, barrel makers and really anybody in the industry is trying their best to scramble and make what is most popular. And six, six five, maybe some sevens. Those are going to be your 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 main stay barrels. And yep. you have them in your possession, ready to cut and ship. Right. Yeah. And that's you know, and that's like we we look at warranty stuff as like we do, we do prefits, right? Somebody asks for prefit, we turn out the best barrel we can. We guarantee the headspace is right, and and we want to know the gun's going to shoot. Somebody calls me up and says, "Hey, I you know," and this happens fairly often. Not 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 that often. It's it's calming down a lot because the uh, the customer base that's out there is getting a lot more ex- experience with prefits. So guys are starting to realize like, Hey, just because that gun doesn't shoot when you screwed a barrel onto it, maybe your first phone call shouldn't be to call up the gunsmith and motherfuck the guy, because there's a lot of other things that go on that could be causing accuracy where it's not the barrel. So, you know, we have some of that in the FAQs like, Hey, if you're having problems, here's your barrel break in. If you're having problems with accuracy, check this 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 right call us if you need help checking any of these things um you know but our our over the last three years with with rock and with lothar um our failure rate has worked out to approximately one in 200 blanks is actually bad right so you know when you do 2,000 barrels you know prefits a year one in 2,000 one in 200 means that about 10 a year are bad Last year it was 11. The year before that it was 13. Um, y- you know, and all those guys get replacements. So <clears throat> we get asked, "Hey, I think this barrel's bad." Probably twice a week. What it's usually is triggers rubbing on the inside of the bottom metal or in the well of the chassis. Bolt handles rubbing on the inside of the chassis or on you know on the stock. Something's touching where it shouldn't. Something's loose. Scope base, um, we had, scope rings. Yep. One, one this week, which I haven't seen in a while, um, a gentleman had a Savage prefit on a Savage action. And he said, yeah, I screwed the whole thing together. Everything fit fine. Um, but when I zeroed it, it didn't shoot real good. And the impact point was six mils high. Oof. Six mils high. I'm thinking about it. And I read back through it, and he goes, oh, he said, oh, I used a Badger recoil lug, and it's in a Whiskey KRG. I think it was a 
I think it was a whiskey three and a KRG, but I, I might be getting it wrong. So if this, you know, if the customer's listening right now, it's, you know, we solved the problem, but I, I don't remember exactly what stock it was. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know, those older stocks didn't handle the Badgers real well because the Badger recoil lug is huge. If his impact point is six mils high at a hundred yards, I'll bet you the bottom of that recoil lug is stuck in the bottom of the trigger pocket. Yeah, After something is binding. Questions. Right. I said, you know, t- take a look, see if this is what's happening. I get an email. You cut out again. Yep, I'll take it out. Oh, I'm losing you again. What is going on with that? Yeah, I don't know. It just wants to do it when it wants to. You got so yeah. you got an email back. What what did the email say? Yeah, so we we get an email back and the and the guy said, Yep, that you know, you called it. No pictures or anything. You called it. He took it out to the range. I get an email the following day, right? Uh yeah, everything's fine. The barrel shoots great, no problems. Thanks for helping me out. Right. So it wasn't a barrel blank issue. It was a it was an assembly problem. Um, you know, so like it it works out that I think a lot more folks because the prefits are becoming more popular and, you know, and this is something that I had when I started taking customer work, I was doing prefits only for bighorns because they were, you know, what AJ was making in Colorado was so good. And what bighorn and now Zermatt, you know, as everything moved into Nebraska, it got even better. Right. Um, so you know, we've always been able to do prefits for anything that those that company made, and we've branched out. There's three dozen shoulder prefits or something like that on the website at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it became the industry standard for action manufacturers right. to make that for for gunsmiths to have the ability mm-hmm. to make those prefits. So they they're there. It's it's there, and it makes your job easier, and it it has brought the whole ability kind of like what was always in the ar-15 market um to uh to be able to do that with precision bolt guns and and that's been that's just been yeah the demand was there and the manufacturers stepped up whether it be you know the new defiance action they've got because defiance's uh shit has been all over the fucking globe as far as with measurements but now they're starting to get that process down to where hey they had space yeah. Uh, obviously all, all the big names. Yep. Yeah. They, I mean, they in particular were late to the party in that regard, Um, Probably the latest. but they, (laughs) well, you know, look, I, um, I don't want to slam anybody. I think, no, I'm not shitting on defiance, but it's just, it is what it is. Right. So, but that was one of the things that I told American rifle company, you know, for when the mousing fields came out, they were not prefit capable. Um, and that was one of the things that I said to Ted. I was like, you're making my life hard. I've got to convince somebody to buy your action. And it's got to sit here while I make them the barrel. They can't just buy the action from you and wait for it to show up. And I can't make a, a barrel for them so that the lead times coincide. It, it, it's a serial product instead of a parallel product. And, um, you know, and, and Bighorn's always been able to do that because of what AJ was doing. Zermatt, when they bought the company um, and brought everything in, the process, like I said, it just got better. So, you know, like, I, I really am happy to see what the action market has done in the last six years. Yep. Um, and, 
And I think precision bolt rifle is enjoying that renaissance in technology right now that we saw the AR market go through in the previous 10 years. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. And, and now we're in the situation where, you know, for the last two or three years, you can get on a couple of different parts retailers' websites and melt a MasterCard on Monday. On Thursday or Friday, you're putting your gun together. The ammo's arrived, and on Saturday, you can go to the range, zero it, break it in, and drop in factory ammo at 1,000 yards on a one-minute plate. Yep. That's where we've come. We have come to that point, and I haven't been doing this game too terribly long since, I think, 2015, and it is that has happened within that time frame. And and now yep. it's like, oh shit, you can't get a prefit for that action? Well, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what's wrong with right. that action? Or you got yeah, a that. shit gunsmith. You know, because yeah. it's just become the industry standard now. Hey, if you're making a custom action, by God, that thing better headspace correct to a prefit barrel or else, you know, you're going to get fried online. Like, you yeah, know, it's, it, it you're going to have the saleable product. Right. You get, you get the kibosh put on it. Even if it's a great action, like it functions great. It, you know, it's got all the whiz bang, you know, gadgets and, and features on the action and, and cycles smooth as, you know, butter. It's still going to be hard to sell because people are like, Hey, look, I, yeah. I'm, I'm liking being able to order a barrel out before this one gets shot out so that I can have it when it does. And I want to screw it on myself and not worry about blowing up my face. So, um, you, they, they stepped up most, most manufacturers, if not just about any of them that are producing custom actions yep. are all within that same realm, which is great, but you need to check. Hey, you need to check and make sure, you know, that you're the action you're wanting to get is that if you're wanting to do the whole prefit game, um, you need to check with your gunsmith, whether it be Josh or whomever else it is. You need to check before you drop $1,300 on an action or more that it, it's going to do that. But chances are whatever one you go with nowadays in the custom action realm, you'll you'll be fine. There'll be a prefit for it, and it'll, it'll headspace great. Yeah, and the, and the actions, you know, 10 years ago, there was – you could name the big players on one hand. Yep. Um, you know, now – Lots of people are making really, really high quality actions. The next thing that I've been, you know, trying to beat the drum on any action maker who will listen and Falcor, to their credit, listen to this was we have two approximate standard tenants in the industry. We have the flat breech face with uh, Savage threads, inch and a 16th by 20. And we have the Remington counterboard breech face with inch and a 16th, 16 threads. So, you know, like, I don't know if this was planned, but a lone peak and an impact short action, you can pretty much swap the barrels between them. Yeah, they do headspace right? to each other. And I talked to Stiller and I did, did some digging with Stillers. And if you use a quarter inch recoil lug on a Stiller, you can put a lone peak slash impact barrel on a Stiller. Did not know that. Time. Yep. So, so there's three of them. Right. I pitched the idea to Falcor and I was like, look, you guys want to bring out the seven and you are at the infancy of the action. This is going like probably almost two years ago. 
And I said to him, I was like, everything you're telling me, the action sounds really good. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a little bit. And I'm and I'm going to say something to you with the intention of not being nice, but trying to get you into the thought process of your intended consumer market. What is your action going to do that is so much better that I'm going to dump my impact and the four broke in good shooting barrels that I've got for it? I've got a $1,500 action and I've got four $750 prefits, right? So that's $3,000 in barrels and $1,500 on an action. So I got $4,500 wrapped into that. Now, if I want to buy your action, I'm going to spend $1,300, $1,400. I'm going to get a barrel put on it. I'm $2,000 into that thing at least. Is it so much better that I'm going to, I'm willing to take a 50, 60 cents on the dollar hit on the other $4,500 I spent on, let's say, my impact to buy your receiver and and re-outfit all of my stuff to mm-hmm. get into Falcor. And like, that's a pretty hard sell. It's not, hey, you know, the action's the same price. Let's buy the action. Like, what you really ought to be doing is looking at it and going, the impacts are popular. We're almost at that same tenant. The Lone Peaks are popular. We're almost at that same tenant. The Stillers are popular. We're basically at that tenant. Let's use the same tenon, and their drawings are published online. Go pull their tenon offline and make your action fit that. Because now you only have to convince the guy, buy the receiver, throw the barrel on that you've already got, and shoot it. You got to shoot a match. Really, it, and if, it, if it's not up to snuff, okay. So you bought a $1,300, $1,400 action, and if you sell it and you, lose the, you lost $100, that's not that big of a deal, right? Or you can go, oh fuck, I really like this thing. I am gonna, I am for whatever reason, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this, and I'm gonna get rid of my Lone Peak or Impact or my Stillers. So now I can take a still a popular receiver and I can sell it, and I'm still gonna keep 90 cents, 95 cents on the dollar for that other receiver, and I can keep all these other barrels. Right. Yep. So. And I said, what you know, what's your total headspace from bolt face to, to recoil face? What is it right now? And they were three thousands off of being there already by happenstance. And I'm like, sounds like a pretty easy fix to me. Fucking a. Right. So so they did that. Now you can take a Falcor receiver and screw the same prefit on an impact, a lone peak, a stiller with a quarter inch recoil lug. Or a Falcor. There's four receivers that use an interchangeable barrel. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, right? someone so could have had now, that same see. conversation with uh, um, Ultimatum. I mean, they could, with with that new, right. with the right. new um, de facto, the 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 Tika footprint actually is basically their version of a uh, of a Tika, and they went with a proprietary tenon. I'm like, okay, you have. Every, you had me at everything until you had the fucking tenon. Like now, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, what the fuck? Like you could have easily gone with a savage, a teak, even a tika, or anything else, right. and, and then just make it to where it's going to headspace the same all the time. Which tika yeah. isn't, you know, isn't Zermatt, but it's definitely not Remington either, as far as their. Uh, uh, I'm, you, I'm you're making prefits, prefits for them. For tikas. Yeah, I'm yeah, shoulder I'm, prefits for tikas. 
I'm looking um, at one we, right now on my Tika. I mean, shit. Yeah. You see it, that rifle against that window right there. That's the Tika you did, and you yeah. you prefitted it. So. Um, and they're, I mean, they're a factory action. They're they're very consistent for factory action. Um, they are not as tight as a Zermatt. Like a Zermatt, sure. in my yep. opinion, is the easiest thing to make a prefit for because, you know, like between a go and a no go gauge, you got four thousands. Zermatt uses half of a, t- a half of a thou so you only got to hold a three and a half thousandths headspace to make a prefit for a zermatt action right mm-hmm. any gunsmith out there who's even halfway competent should be able to do that and if they can't maybe we maybe we should find somebody else to make prefits yeah then you become a locksmith not a gunsmith uh, yeah right or or a blacksmith you know yeah blacksmith yeah even even better go make some swords <laughs> go make some um, swords it, you know, but with the Tikas, when we started doing the Tika shoulder prefits, we announced those in Shot Show in January of you know Shot Show January 19, and there were two other companies, but much bigger barrel making companies than us, that immediately jumped on the back and yeah, we could do that too. Um, and then in the next five or six months, I fixed a lot of barrels where the headspace was closing on a no go gauge because they were. They were making barrels, but they were making barrels and only holding their headspaces the same way they would hold their Zermots. The Tika doesn't allow you to do that. Some of them would be too tight and they wouldn't close on a go gauge, and some of them would be too loose and they would drop on a no-go gauge. So, you know, like you do have some work to do um, action to action. I've got a specific print for every single one of them. And like we don't make sight unseen Badger 2008 or Badger 2013 um Prefits, prefits, shoulder prefits. That's not because I don't think the actions are capable of doing it. It's because the actions at this point are not popular enough where I've seen enough of them to go through and do a statistical analysis and say, here is my certainty interval where here's what I have to hold the headspace, the total headspace, the protrusion, etc. Here's what my numbers are. It's this many thousandths or this many tenths wide. And then I know we're going to be safe. Yeah, and, and you've had how that, many Tikas have you had in your hands? How many Tikas do you think off the top of your head have you had in your hands? Where you've measured yourself? At least yourself? 100. Right. At least 100, because I won't launch an action without 100 sets. Right. So right. that's so, bare minimum 100 actions that you have taken the measurements on. And that's why you have the ability to do that, because like you said, Tika's not quite Zermatt, but they're also not the other end of the spectrum either they're close enough right. to where you've had enough a big enough data set to be able to safely produce a a prefit for that action which yep that's awesome yep yeah I, and i think they do a great job on that um you know and falcor's doing a great job impact's doing a great job i mean like like we said there's a large number of companies out there that are doing really, really good receivers. And I think the next thing that we should be as a consumer base and as a gunsmithing voice pushing the receiver market to look at is as these companies are bringing new receivers out, um, I already have the drawings done. I just haven't had the time to write the white paper. I think this is probably the first time in any public facing uh, release that I've talked about the idea is Make two, it, like, I, I hate to call them a universal receiver tenon because it's not universal with two of them, but, you know, make two of them, right? There's there's the 
the universal A and the universal B. The universal A is this set of dimensions on an inch and a sixteenth tenon with a counterbore. And the universal B is a flat breech face with an inch and a sixteenth twenty TPI. Um, and, you know, like set them up so that here's your protrusion. If you have a barrel for this, 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 well, it's also cross compatible. And mm. for companies that have existing lines, right? Let's say like uh, American Rifle Company, Zermatt, Ultimatum, you know, they're all using the inch and a 16th by 20 with a flat breech face um, thread. Uh, you know, uh, that rough tenon. But American Rifle Company is one pattern, all barrels. If you have a prefit from us in the last two years, it will fit a nucleus in Archimedes or a mousing field. Mm-hmm. If you have a TL3 short action from us, then any TL3 short action barrel we've ever made will fit any other TL3 short action barrel, or, you know, receiver. Um, but if you could get those companies to say, okay, we're going to do universal B and universal B, you can blaze that with a laser right on the side of the receiver, you know, so that we know going forward, if somebody has that receiver in hand, it doesn't have the the universal B mark on the side of the receiver. Okay. Well, you know, you got to get a regular prefit. If you do have that mark on your receiver, well, then you could use a universal B prefit or you can use a universal A prefit, right? Mm-hmm. And the universal A being like, okay, impact, lone peak, uh, stiller with a, a quarter-inch recoil lug, uh, Falcor, right? So those four right now, that fits universal A, they're interchangeable. And now what that does is it's, you know, we're bringing things over to what the AR-15 market is and the AR-10 market is, where I can take a barrel off of any one of my AR-15s and put it on any other AR-15. Yep. Now there's still uppers, you know, that like Seekins has a proprietary interface, I believe. Um, Mega has one that's a proprietary interface, but they all use the same barrel with barrel extension assembly. You put them on, you put the barrel nut and stuff together, you put the handguard on, you can shoot it. And so it's an AR-15 barrel or an AR-10 barrel. I'd like to see the precision bolt action rifle market go to, you know, the universal A, the universal B pattern, because... Some guys like the sliding T-slot. Some guys like the, you know, the coned breech face, or excuse me, not the coned breech face, the, the counterboard breech face, right? That three rings of steel marketing campaign that Remington pushed really hard for like 30 years in the, you know, the middle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and to me, that brings, to me, that, what that does is it just, all it, it helps all the manufacturer action manufacturers for the same reason why you just talked about you right. know with Falcor you know it it makes as long as as long as a, a an action gets sold by a manufacturer yes they would obviously love for that person to keep that and shoot that and always be loyal to their their company and and enjoy their products and everything like that but at the end of the day too. If that person then sells that action to somebody else, well, they got their nut once, and that's what they're looking to do. If it makes it easier for people to switch actions and stuff like that, people are going to be buying, guess what, a lot more actions because of the same reason why you just explained about Falcor right. with the with the uh, impact barrels. I mean, so they're all going to – it's almost like that whole rising tide raises all boats thing. 
that's basically what it's doing. If they already got together, hey, at SHOT Show, do it at SHOT Show. Hey, here's this has got an idea. Here's this. Here's this. Pick one. Go with that. Then we're all going to we're all going to benefit from this, you know, right. to get that, that next step into that AR-15, you know, right. world of, 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 you know, being able to do that. Yep. And, and, and you know, the AR-15 world was driven by a mil spec pattern. But um, I read somewhere on a uh, on a manufacturer's report summary that the estimated number of AR-15s in in the civilian market prior to the 1994 crime bill, right, which was just a bullshit gun grab deal, was less than a half a million AR-15s. Fast forward 25 years later, and there's 20 million AR-15s mm-hmm. in civilian hands. That that awakening of the platform with different calibers, different uh, barrel lengths, you know, I'm sure the fact that you know, guys deployed to the sandbox, spent a year over there, and then they wanted a gun that kind of looked like the M4 that they carried. Yeah, they had a lot to do with it, for sure. Yeah, there. I mean, but there's there was a huge awakening in three gun, two gun, um, you know, sporting rifles, apple seed, all this stuff that went on in the early 2000s that made the AR-15 the most popular gun in the United States. That, that stuff is now coming into those same people who got into it then. It's coming into the precision bolt action market. So let's facilitate that as an industry. Let's be forward looking and say, what can we do to facilitate getting them out there to people? Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the next thing. And, I, you know, I have the drawings already done and the drawings are based on looking at all the prefits that we make, how close can we get so that it's minimal amount of changes to the, the manufacturing process for all of the manufacturers so it's a lot easier to adopt. You know, um, and, and I th- I'll probably end up just putting the white paper up on the website, put it up on Sniper's Hide, post it on Facebook. You know, like I've already talked to several rifle manufa- action manufacturers and they're like, all right, well, put it in front of us. Let's see the proposal because if there's, um, you know, if there's a push from the market, we'll absolutely support it. I sure. think the only way we're going to get a push from the market is we put the information out there and guys look at it and go, hey, man, I would do that. Right. Like right now, we've already got four receivers that guys can interchange. Yeah. Defiance, their new anti-ruckus tenacity, right, their prefit actions. They're pretty close to that as it is, right? They're they're not they're less than twenty five thousandths away from that to begin with. So if Defiance added on, that's five, right? Now we've got some of the most popular products being able to say, there we go, we're going to use receiver A, and and Defiance's receivers have always been the inch and a sixteenth counterboard you know, Remington style interface mm-hmm. back when it was Nasika to Phoenix to defiance, you know, Glenn has, has used that interface, um, you know, with great success. So if we could get something that, you know, they're, they're already holding prefits. Let's, let's go one more step and make it a universal prefit. I mean, it would only help a company, especially like defiance. I mean, it only, it'll, it would only help them sell more. Yeah, I, I think it would be, a, you know, a big thing for the industry. It might be a little slow to catch on um, initially, 
but like you said, you know, the rising tide raises all boats as people adopt it. It's just like the prefit market. You couldn't get a prefit action like the concept of a prefit action. When I started telling people, yeah, we can do prefits. We're going to do bighorn sight unseen. I don't ever need to see your action. I'll make you a barrel and mail it to you. Dude, the shit that I took on sniper's hide for that was unbelievable. <laughs> now, and, now everybody's people, trying to get in on that game. Right. Yep. Everybody, if if you're a gunsmith and you can't make a prefit, like you better give out free BJ's or something because otherwise you're going to go out of business. Well, we can think of one. We're not going to say their names. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> we can think of one in particular, and I did get banned from there when I was on social media from Instagram or Facebook, and I got called out. Well, right. actually, I called them out, and that was a fun day, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah that was <laughs> Yeah, and there's a couple, yeah, well. a couple people that are listening to this that I know right now. Uh, ben Fleener, you know, because me and Ben had this conversation because he had a very similar um he had a very similar uh, interaction with said gunsmith, and uh, it was it was pretty comical. The, his story is hilarious. Um, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, that, have to, offline, yeah, we'll get that offline. I'll have to talk to Ben. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I need to talk yeah. to Ben. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, you're right though. In, you know, any gunsmith, especially on sniper's hide, we all know who the the go-to gunsmiths are, and really all of them have the ability to do that that prefit um for for most actions maybe not as big a catalog of actions as you have but not because they don't have the ability because they don't have the data set that you do to make that educated um you know decision on doing it or or to how to do it safely but you know but for the big the great big manufacturer names that had that hold those kind of tolerances yeah just about most gunsmiths you go to have to deal with that yep yep for sure well i I want to bring up another thing that pva is coming out but i don't know we and you haven't discussed if we're going to announce that yet uh the timothy murphy stuff yep no, we're going to hold that one back for now. All right. We'll hold that one back. Yep. So yeah, that'll that, be that for another still, episode. Far, it, it's still in development. We'll do that at a different episode. Okay. Well, just stay tuned, folks, because there's something that you would not expect out of Patriot Valley Arms uh, come out of Patriot Valley Arms. So it's uh, it will it, it will exist, and it's going to be awesome. And, uh, yeah, we'll save that for another podcast when you get further down the road on it. Cool. But right. is there anything else you got that you want to get out there, brother? Um, no, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I actually, it's probably a pretty good time to stop now because my headset just died. Yep. So I just had to switch over to, um, regular earbuds or, or get off of my earbuds and, and switch over to my phone. So you actually sound a little better now. <laughs> uh, well <clears throat> yeah it is what it is. Uh, i finished fine. my cigar and i walked inside too so maybe that has something to do with it right well i'm yeah. trying to think if there's anything that i needed to announce this has been like fucking three weeks since i've done a podcast but uh i don't know i'll have time to think about it before i record with josh uh so in case anybody knows uh, doesn't know yet uh thursday night i'm recording with josh bandy from pigger precision you've heard me talk about shooting his matches and how great a match director he is and, and how great he is for the sport. And, uh, um, 
uh, sang his praises plenty enough, and uh, I'm sure Josh is probably listening to this right now. But speaking of which, I uh, actually you have to sign to... your ass yeah. up to shoot that match with me in October. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to sign yeah. up to shoot with me and Jeff. Yep. Well, so. th- that's the Guardian match they're doing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's or the Guardian match else? at Pig River, yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I need to get into that. Um, it's been on my list for a couple of years. I really, really want to go shoot a Guardian match. Dude, what I what I tell everybody about it, like my cousin Jamie that fished the uh, tournament with us, I think I'm gonna get mm-hmm. him to uh, to shoot a guardian match because of this very same thing is that I try to explain to people, it is a match that is intended a to, to obviously be fun, um for the for, you know intended to to raise money for orphanage uh you know orphanage um uh 50c3 company uh, and I said company um foundation or whatever but you know as far as the shooter goes it's meant to be fun um it's meant to help promote the sport and grow it with new shooters to have that type of uh um environment to hey there's no pressure here we're gonna we're gonna call corrections on your shots that's for everybody everybody gets corrections so it won't just be you um it's not going to be a situation or environment where let's say hey who's first match and you raise your hand, we're like, oh, fuck, I'm going to feel like I'm the weird guy. No, th- that's where we want to know because we're going to make sure, us season shooters, we're going to make sure that you have the best time shooting that you can. Uh, but mm-hmm. even if you have won you know, the PRS finale, it's still a fun-ass match to shoot. It's so much fun. And so I'm always trying to promote Gary Larson and, and the Guardian uh, and uh, Brittany McMillan and – they they do a phenomenal job of that and uh, yeah, the the Guardian mat, match at uh, Pig River is going to be epic. I mean you got Pig River which is an epic facility with a I mean one of the best doing it match director with coupled with what the Guardian brings and what the Guardian always is it's it's going to be it's going to be the tits man you're gonna you're gonna have yep. you're gonna have fun at it I'm I'm excited about you uh, finally getting to shoot a match with me. I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to be a great time. I, you know, like I said, it's been on my list for a long time to do a guardian. Um, but yeah. I'm, I, and you know, on top of that, it's close too. you know, it's the reason I haven't before is not being last year, but in other years, it's like, Oh yeah, there, you know, there's going to be one out West and there's one in this state. I'm looking at him like, I just, I can't take five days off from the shop right now. No, no, un- understood. I completely understandable. You know, that's, that's, I mean, especially in a business right now in a, in a uh, gun industry environment that, that we're in where everybody's spending money right now, spending their Trump and Biden bucks on, uh, right. on, on firearm shit. Yeah. You've, you've had an influx of, um, of customers, which is a, which is a good thing. It helps Patriot mm-hmm. Valley grow as a company, and you get to invest back in your company to make it to where you can handle even more of a workload. That's that's awesome. It, and it, and it also allows us to do stuff like you know the barrels, the bullets, you know those right in, innovation. Yeah, if we couldn't invest in the company to be able to do that. I mean, I I did taxes a couple months ago looked at what I invested in 2020 into the bullets. And I think if I had that number in front of me in 2017, 
I probably would have been like, uh, this is dumb. I'm not doing this. I don't, I don't see how this is ever going to pay back. Yep. You know, but you know, we did it and we did it because we have a great customer base who believes in our products and we were able to develop something that pushed the, the state of the technology further forward. Yes, yes, you have, my friend. So. You've done a good job of that, and you're continuing to do it, especially with the announcement that will come in the next podcast you come on. Like, that's going to be. It's just I'm excited about it because it's just break. It's breaking your mold. It's it's it. it not to give too much away. I'm not gonna give anything away, <laughs> but it's just it's so not what you would think, but it's going to kick so much ass. So it's, I hope I'm, so. Let's, I'm excited let's not hype it. it up too much before I I'm gonna hype the shit it out of it, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm gonna hype the shit out of it. So anyway, well, cool, homie. Well, uh, I appreciate you um, coming on and doing this with me tonight. And to all my listeners, I know you have been just distraught because you just did not have you have not had your weekly fix of of the Just Epicenter podcast, and and my voice has not graced your ears, but um, in, in a few weeks. But you know, relief is on the way. My Here goodness, you think highly of yourself. <laughs> Yeah, everyone knows how the, they could smell the sarcasm through their speakers of their car <laughs> right now. But yep. cool. All right, homie, All right, let's jump off here and uh, and uh, I'll chat with you for a sec before we go. But guys, thanks for your support. Thanks for the downloads as always. Um, and uh, stay tuned. I'm gonna have one. Uh, I'm gonna have a kick-ass podcast for you next week. I'm recording on Thursday. So see you. Sweet. <laughs>